Welcome to the podcast, Phenomenosophy, Episode 5, Path to Freedom. Today, Jinji and I will be discussing the various principles and philosophies and practices that have been around through the ages, from the earliest philosophies and religions up to modern traditions and philosophies as well regarding personal freedom and responsibility and some other things that we'll be getting into. So, Jinji, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I am very well. So I think what I'd like to do is, uh, I guess, have a conversation regarding, I guess, let's start off with, uh, what do you think? And if somebody asks you about freedom, or when you think about personal freedom and your experience of freedom, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? That's a good question. Um, I guess I'd have to define what freedom is first. Right. So, yeah, and, um, and actually I think a... many of the philosophies we'll be touching on today, I feel there's a lot of different phrases used. So let me throw out some of the phrases that I'm, I plucked from various traditions, philosophies, and religions in order to kind of like really... I feel like it's all part of the same conversation. So in Western religion, especially Christianity, you have a concept of the closest thing I can come to or the closest concept that, that related to what we're talking about today that I felt, in my opinion, was uh, that of salvation um, and the power of ar arriving there through faith. So that's one principle and concept through religion. And then like you have the Hindu traditions where they have the, the concept of moksha, which is liberation. Um, and then even concepts in Buddhism like nirvana or, or even satori or samsada, uh, which I believe in the, again, translations, uh, you, could, you could translate it as liberation. You can translate it as um, enlightenment, you can, I mean, there's many ways of translating this, but I feel like in many philosophical traditions that we can kind of tie them all together under the banner of freedom. So with that, go. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I would say is that I, I notice often that people confuse freedom and liberty, especially in America. Mm -hmm. So I would start there in making a distinction where liberty is something that's granted and freedom is something that's inherent because that to me is the context to look at the experience of freedom. whether or not you are free and whether or not you experience freedom are two different. And that's something that's inherent with being um, uh, human on this planet. But so, I mean, Technical difficulties. Yeah, get your gang going up a little bit. You're cutting out. Um, okay, so freedom. You you want to make a distinction between freedom and liberty, is what I hear hear you saying. Right. And so hold on. Did that did that get any better? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see when you're not you know, <laughs> stretched over your computer. Um, so the distinction that you were drawing was between 
uh, well, two distinctions actually. Freedom. The difference okay. between liberty and freedom, and the mm -hmm. difference between being free and experiencing freedom. So, okay. so what's the distinction out, there between being the, free and experiencing freedom? Okay, so fundamentally, let me let me start with the other one. So, the difference between liberty and freedom is liberty is something granted by an external authority. And freedom is something that is inherent within being human. So if we're looking at freedom and not liberty, then it's the difference between experiencing freedom and being free. You may be free to make whatever choices you want, but feel like you can't make certain choices without something. So you may feel that you're not totally free to to do anything that you actually want to do. Okay. So, so like, say, say like, I don't have the freedom. I don't feel like I have the freedom to go do crack cocaine and heroin anytime I want to because of the laws that are in place and X, Y, Z, which realistically I'm entirely free to go procure those things and do them. There's just ramifications afterwards. So the, the mental construct that I create around those the relationship between those substances and our, our legal systems have me experiencing not being free. Okay, lack of freedom. But that's really, right. doesn't that speak to the distinction you were making about liberty? Because you were saying that liberty was something that was granted. So is it a liberty? No, you're because... Into, or you're, you, because you, you're not... Well, here's, you're not you, here's my confusion. Okay. Because <laughs> okay, you said that there was a freedom inherent Correct. in 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 being right so what do you mean by that you said it's there's so, an inherent freedom what do you mean by inherent freedom there was no external source that gave me the ability or the option to go procure and consume whatever i want and make up my own mind as to what it is i'm going to consume whereas I, the, the government has not given me the liberty to consume illegal substances, but I still have the freedom to go find them and do them if I want to. Okay. There's just ramifications for those acts, <laughs> right? I could potentially owe tons of money or spend time in jail or, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So that's distinct from, right. from the, because you made a third distinction here of experience of freedom. So, Right. You've talked about the inherent freedom of really I, I can choose. That's that's kind of really the inherent freedom that you're referring to is is choice. I, I can choose to really do whatever I want, right? I could make any choice that that I choose that I want at any moment, and that's the inherent freedom you were talking about. And then you talk about a liberty, which is authority granted by something someone which allows for certain things to occur or allows you to partake in a certain activity or whatever and now tell me about the experience you made a third distinction there which was the experience of freedom so i don't think i really gave an explanation or an example of liberty but maybe it could be something like because I'm playing basketball, I'm afforded certain liberties. Like if I get 
uh, some type of illegal contact, I get to shoot extra dots for free uh, free throw points, right? Potentially get something in return for that foul or whatever. It's so that would be like a liberty that's granted to me by an external source. I can't say, hey, I'm taking free throw shots. That doesn't work in the game of basketball. The referee has to deem it um, appropriate for me to be rewarded with free throw So now, after that, the experience of freedom versus actually being free are two totally different things. And I did give an example of that where being, I, I have freedom of choice, but I may not experience being free to choose anything I want. But they're not necessarily the same thing. So I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I did kind of give one. But I thought your because, example of the, I mean, to me, it seemed like you were speaking about that when you were speaking about the, the, the drugs, right? Like there are laws the drugs, right. that, that prohibit certain Because drugs. I believe that I could go to jail, I may not feel free to make that choice. No, no, no. Yeah, Which but, in there, reality, but, that, but that's the laws that are in place. Yes. I, that, that's why I'm saying you had already made those two distinctions. Right. The inherent freedom that, yeah, I can so choose it example. at any time. Right. What I'm asking, <laughs> okay. I, I felt like you hit those two. I didn't feel okay, like you needed to I thought you were asking me to explain it. No, <laughs> I wanted you to explain to me the, the third one, the, the one you haven't explained, which was ex experience of freedom. Because I feel you touched on inherent freedom, which is out of choice. I can choose right. whatever, whenever. And you touched on freedom, or I mean on liberty. So I feel right. like you've touched on those two. You made, you made those distinctions, but you made a third distinction an experience of freedom, and that's what I wanted you to. So the question would be, how do you experience freedom? Or what well, what, is what's the, the distinction? What's the distinction? You talked about an inherent freedom. You've talked about a liberty. And you talked about an, an, the experience of freedom is the word you use. Right. So I had a distinction of freedom versus liberty. And then I had an entirely different distinction of experiencing freedom and being free. Okay, so explain so the experience that. is different. Okay, so, so tell me. Tell me that distinction. And that, and that was the example I gave about the drugs. I'm totally free to do any drug I want to, but because of the potential ramifications that might happen, like jail, I don't feel and experience I'm free to actually participate in those things. All right, I feel like there's a blurred distinction there. Because the going <laughs> okay, to, let's clear it up. Because the going to jail is that there's this authority. Okay, I see what you're saying. So that would be like you're not at liberty. Yeah. To to me, you're that's a that's a blurred distinction there. That that's so let's not get clear. a different. I feel uh, like there is a distinction. Like when is. you when you said the words, I was like, okay, I I feel like I know where he's going with that. But that example, in my opinion, is is shite yeah. and doesn't really get at what you're trying to say. So let's let's think this through. <laughs> um. Let's find an example of, of what that would really be like in, in an, exist, an example where it's not referencing any type of authority figure, like police or government, jail, that kind of ramification. Or laws, yeah, consequences, right. whatever. So something would have to be totally internal, which could be like, I'm free to um, communicate or speak to anybody that I want to. But because I feel shy or because I've been um, 
criticized before because whatever my previous experiences may be, I may feel like I, I can't do that. That's just not, you know, who I am. That's just not something I'm good at. That's not something I enjoy. So the distinction for me is that there's things getting in the way of experiencing the freedom that's inherent within it, the individual. Right. Ah, perfect. Because that's really where every kind of other philosophy around that, what you're calling experience of freedom jumps in. Yeah. So it's because it, it's, it's that. So in, in like in Hindu traditions, they have the concept of liberation. What are you, what are you being liberated from? And, and then in Buddhism, same thing, they have had this, this concept of samadhi or um, nirvana, you know, the letting go, the blowing out. And if you look at the principles that are in place that would prevent one from that experience, I, I, I always like to, I feel like in this conversation that the, the simplest explanation for, as far as like uh, practical usable concepts and principles as well as practices that you can embody um, would come from Eastern traditions such as uh, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. And uh, so I'll start with that because the, the fundamental elements, the fundamental teachings, doctrines of Buddhism starts with what's called the fourfold noble truth. And, and that first truth, which is really what I think you're getting at is what's, what holds you back, what, what, what's preventing that experience of freedom. And that first truth is, uh, is uh, dukkha, which is Sanskrit. And we, we translate as suffering, as the truth of suffering. And so you, in your example that you were just uh, explaining, there was, well, what, you know, what's holding me back? And it's the, it could be, you know, what you feel will come in return, what you feel the experience will be. It's, it's how we avoid, it's, it, what you're talking about is avoidance, right? Avoiding suffering, avoiding whatever it is that would have you not, in a place of not suffering, being uncomfortable, That's being uncomfortable, whatever it is. I mean, suffering seems like a pretty extreme word, um, but really it's, it doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to mean like no. at the end of a blade suffering, right? No. And that's where <laughs> it could just be uncomfortable. Exactly. And, and that's, so that's really, I want to paint a broad stroke with this, this concept of suffering like, because it is, it, it isn't intended to be like, I, I imagine, especially in the use of English, you say the word suffering and, you know, the pictures and the images that get, that conjure up in one's mind are like, you know, someone being hung from their feet and, you know, dipped in water tortured. and yeah, tortured. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, suffering. It comes in many different forms. And, and I guess if you look at the other truths here, okay, it, it may give you an idea of, of really what we're talking about when we say suffering. So, the, the second the second truth in, in Sanskrit is trishna. It's where we get our word thirst, right? Mm-hmm. And 
it's uh, it's translated typically as uh, attachment, right? And uh, I think that's I think that definition. What's the difference that between that and desire? It's exactly it's it is okay. it, there is it could be tra- it's translated both ways. In fact, some people do translate it as desire. Um, mm. But I think if you look at the root word, the Sanskrit word of thirst, I almost feel that like that's that's almost more to the point than attachment and desire. Um, right. And so, so if you look at okay, so it's desiring or thirsting or having attachment to that is the cause of suffering, right? So the second truth, Trishna is the truth of the cause of suffering. I can kind of see both of them there where to thirst or have desire for something Mm -hmm. like a new car or a specific food that you want to eat. There may be suffering involved in that, Mm -hmm. but that's easily let go of. And it's no longer something that I may be experiencing suffering with. However, if I remain attached to that desire and that thirst, so there is an aspect of like being attached to the thirst. Right. And also and game. also look at the thirst or the desire beyond material things. People thirst or desire to be right. People thirst or desire right. to be accepted, to be acknowledged, right? So there this goes beyond just like a, an attachment to things. Um it goes beyond uh, a, a desire for stuff. It is also uh, the desire, or like you said, attachment, or the thirst for even a, a, a state. You know, a state of mind, a feeling, an emotion, like uh, like the desire to be happy all the time. Right, and and there's this, uh, you know, this people who just seek gratification. Right, they they live life in just seeking gratification, and and whatever gratification they seek and achieve is never enough because there's always more seeking for gratification. So you can see in there that being the thirst and having thirst is at the root or cause of suffering. So the now third, there is there is yeah, one more thing that that pops into my mind, which is was it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? What who? hierarchy of needs guy Mm. did you ever read into that sure no uh i mean i may have but it's not nothing's coming up for me right now um i'm actually going to look it up real quick so i can tell you because it's maslow's hierarchy of needs and it's basically um like physiological needs so like shelter food sleep that kind of thing Mm-hmm. There's a safety level, which is like enough money, enough resources, enough human connection, or not human connection, because that's the third level, which is like love and belonging. And then the top one, or the second to top one is self-esteem mm-hmm. and feeling good about yourself and self-image. And then the top one is self-actualization. And so they say that you can't create a level of safety without first achieving the physiological um, need and satisfying that and then the safety and then love and belonging and then esteem and then self-actualization. Right. That's interesting because remember Buddhism comes out of Hinduism. Uh, mm-hmm. b- uh, basically if you, Buddhism is, uh, 
eliminate all the dogma and culture of Hinduism and you're stuck with these core principles that the Buddha kind of carved out of the principles of Hinduism. And in Hinduism, moksha, um, which is liberation from ignorance, self-realization, self-actualization, self-knowledge, they have... They describe the the liberation from samsara, which is like cyclical life, the cyclical world. Um, oftentimes, people define it as the 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 cycles of birth, or Hindus would describe it as the cycles of birth and death. But I feel like it's talking about like the rat race as well, the cycles within a life, you know, cyclic right. world in itself. And just as you were describing uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They have, they're, again, the, the Hindu approach is, is a little more complicated than the Buddhist approach. And that's why I kind of was going with the Buddhist because it's much simpler. But it's interesting because mm -hmm. in the Hindu approach, you have a, many of those elements that you were describing in Maslow's hierarchy within the liberation, the, the process of liberating oneself from samsara. Um, and and so you have those for one those different aspects of life. You know, there's the uh, the three paths of dharma, um, the virtuous, the the proper, the moral life, uh, artha, which is the material prosperity, income security, means, um, and then kama, which is pleasure, sensuality, or emotional fulfillment. Um, so it's interesting that that again these aren't Maslow isn't proposing anything new. These are ancient ideas formed in ancient traditions. That's why you put them in a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is interesting in, in concept of the desire, the attachment, the need is what is at the seat, the root, root of suffering. Because there's a, an entire ideology that is founded on this hierarchy of needs where fundamentally people need air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, and the reproduction. That's like at the baseline of the human experience. And you can't reach safety of needs like personal security, employment, resources, health, property, until you've satisfied the bottom level. And it goes up and up and up to self-actualization. And mm -hmm. in my mind, like that, that can't even be the top. What happens when you're self-actualized? I almost imagine that there would be an entire spectrum of needs that grow from that, <laughs> of being self-actualized. Um, but I wonder if even engaging in this model inherently has great suffering, <laughs> having a model based on needs. Yes, I, I, I would say probably um, most likely. I, I, if we got into the conversation of like, let's say Samadhi, and, and this is for another show definitely because this is a much deeper topic than we can address uh, as a subtopic here. Um, but the, the illusion of the self, okay, is where is the first thing you're going to approach when you, when you start looking at some of these uh, traditions of liberation and freedom in that without 
taking on and comprehending and understanding and having a, a concept of self that goes beyond the illusion of self. Uh, like I said, this is, a, this is definitely a topic I don't want to get into right now. I, I feel, yeah, I feel like we can do a, a whole show on that, but I would say yes, because for one, it's your defining needs, right? So let's, okay. So let's look at our, let's go back to our fourfold, fourfold noble truth here and finish it out real quick. Um, just so that okay, we number can, three. Yes, number the the third. So we got we got the truth of the the truth of suffering, right? And, or the yes, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the second truth, and the third truth is the uh, the eightfold noble path. And it's it's funny because in in Western culture and Western society we equate this typically as being the same thing as or similar to like the 10 commandments but they're not that uh it's Can not these four truths this third truth the third okay. truth is is an is the eightfold noble path or is it the fourth maybe nirvana is the third <laughs> <laughs> either way i might be mixing them up but there, I don't think the order of them is really necessary. I feel like we can we can go on to the eightfold noble path here, uh, and it's not it's not a it's not like Western tradition where it's like here's what you must do. I would I equate at least fundamentals of Buddhism to like like an early form of. Uh, like psychoanalysis, okay? In that when you look at it, or at least it's core elements. Of course, it's been made into religion in many different cultures, and it's actually at the base of many different religions within many different cultures. But I'm, I'm coring out these central principles, which, are, which is just that fourfold noble truth and the eightfold noble path within the fourfold noble truth. And it's not like commandments. It it, first of all, again, if I go back to the Sanskrit, and the reason I like to use the Sanskrit words in explaining these principles is that we can also look at how it may be translated. If I was just to read somebody's English translation of it, I feel like something gets lost. So in the Eightfold Noble Path, it begins each each of the... I guess, elements of the path, each of the eight, begins with the word samyank, okay? Which is typically translated as right, okay? And and typically when somebody sees right, they they think of it as, as opposed to wrong, okay? So you have like samyank, uh, right, view, right, aspiration or intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, like career, right effort. Um, and then again, there's typically the translation of right mindfulness, which we could also, in the work that you and I do, we, we've used the word presence. Do you and spell then there's, right the same way? Yes, samyank 
it, it uh, it's not the word right. I'm going to give you the other translations. Okay. I'm giving you how it's how it's typical how these these eight elements are typically translated in English. And then there's the eighth, which is samadhi, which is typically translated as right concentration. Which, when you look at samadhi, because samadhi is not just a, a concept within Buddhism, but you find it in Hinduism and Jainism as well. And I feel like that's a really inadequate explanation, right? Concentration. So again, let's look, if we work at, look at the word samyank, it could mean right. It could mean whole or holy. It could mean clearly. It could mean distinctly. It could mean balanced. Um, it could mean conscious. Okay, so those are some of the words we could use there. So again, rather than looking at as right as 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 distinct from wrong, you know, right, wrong, uh, or correct. I've heard. I've actually heard it. Uh, translate as correct view, correct intention, correct speech, correct action. Right. It's not what it meant. It's not saying like, oh, here there is a right way and there is a wrong way. You better do the right way. For one, it's not saying you better do anything. It's like, look, there's suffering. <laughs> That's the fundamental truth. There is suffering. Number two, the cause of suffering is your attachments. It's your, it's your thirst, your desires, right? And then the third truth is like, oh, look, here's, here's a way to suffer less or to get out of the whole suffering game, right? And, it, and it's these eight practices, okay? It's really what it is. So if we look at it as like whole or balanced view or whole or balanced intention or whole or balanced speech or action or livelihood or effort or mindfulness, um, it, you, you can start to see that there's, there's, there's more meaning that we can bring in there and not so much there is a right and a wrong way, you know, there, like there's a right way to view things. You know what I mean? That's why I feel like that translation of right as if there's yeah. like, as opposed to like, oh, well, that's the wrong way to look at it. <laughs> like, or that, that's this is the right way to look at it. This is the wrong way to look at it. Or like this, this is, is the, the right way to live. Yeah, These exactly. Are the commandments you should exactly. follow. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's not what that word is is meant. That's not what they mean by that word. It's not. To, they're not saying if it if it were, they would say think this way, right? That's what mm -hmm. that's what the that's what would be coming out. If, if there was a right way to speak, right, then they would say, oh, speak like this. Speak this way say these things, you know, uh, if there was a right way to act, they would say, well, act this way, act, you know what I mean? But when you start to think about, okay, well, what about balanced? You know, what if I, if I substituted that word right for balanced or whole, right? Uh, it starts to take on a different meaning. And, and what's interesting is in, uh, in later analysis of Buddhism, it was typically looked at as, uh, as one who is within the practices and embodying the practices and principle of Buddhism is one who walks the middle way. Okay. And there was, there's even a word Ooh, I'm forgetting it right now, but it's basically, it's a, a middle wadeness, right? And so yeah. it's, it's in the, the middle wadeness. And, and this comes out of, uh, out of the, the Chinese uh, interpretations of Buddhism, which led to Chan, which became Zen 
And the reason why there's this different interpretation out of Chinese traditions is because Chinese already had Confucianism and Taoism. And so there was already, with Taoism, there was already this very balanced way of looking at the nature of reality in that the way, right, the Tao uh, was about that balance and, the, and that, uh, that essential uh, integration of, of opposites. And that you don't have one without the other. You don't have light without dark. You don't have good without evil. You don't have these things. These things define each other. Um, you cannot have one without the other. And so there, with, that, with that background, that both that Taoist and that uh, uh, Confucius background, or Confucianism background, I guess, um, that, that Samyang has a, different, has a different meaning, right? It's not so much right, you know, the right view or the right way to speak or the right way to act as, you know, as opposed to wrong. It's more of a balanced or a holistic way of speaking or viewing or acting, right? So or it's a sacred way, which I, I really like looking at it in terms of sacred or conscious or, or spiritual or something like that, where right. it's not, it must be this way, but it is a way that could be intentional. It could be conscious. It could be sacred. It could be if you choose to make it such. Right. Right. And I would say that that's, I think that's where you, what you have to look at is, is doing an analysis of your actions and your interpretations in such a way that you are conscious and aware of, of attachments, desires, like, you know, like the practice of looking at whether or not what I'm saying right now is because I need to be right about something or I need to look good because the need to be right, which is, and these are the reason I pick those two particular, because in, in Western culture, those are huge that in Western culture, there is this need within people to be right, to look good, and, 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 uh, and, and the need for acknowledgement, right? And the need for uh, approval, right? We seek the approval of others. So if we, if we see that and we re recognize that there is a desire for those things, right? There's the desire for looking good. There's the desire for being right. There's the desire for the approval, acceptance, and acknowledgement of others. And that desire is what causes the suffering. So in this path, you know, where we're leading to, the fourth truth here mm -hmm. is, the, is that nirvana. And nirvana, interestingly, literally translated as like blowing out, right? So it's the, the letting go. Um, and I mean, there's, again, it's not necessarily translated that way. Uh, again, if you look at a, an English translation of Buddhism and the, the fourfold noble truth and nirvana is usually going to be translated something like enlightenment or something along those lines. Uh, I don't think that that's what it is. It, it, it makes more sense that it's a, a letting go or a state of freedom or mm -hmm. moksha, like, or like what, the, uh, what the Hindus call it, that state of liberation. And uh, 
So I would equate it to that, is that it's this state where if you, and again, it's not saying that by following this Eightfold Noble Path is necessarily equals this experience. It's like, look, that's, if you want to get there, this is, these are some practices you can undertake to get you there. Uh, so it's not, it's not a formula, so to speak. And that's and why it's, it's not also even, not, it's not even the only way to get there. No. And it's, and it doesn't say that it's the only way to get there. It's mm -hmm. like, look, here's, here's a suggestion. Like I said, it's more like a, it's more like a, it's like psychoanalysis where it's like, well, okay, you have, you're suffering, you know, and we've got some practices, some tools. So like, if you take and break down each one, like, you know, like the, the right view, right. Or, or the balanced or holistic view. It's the way you view the world. So it's, it's, it's the way you're interpreting what's happening around you, which I feel like if you go back to the last episodes we did, especially uh, Beyond the Matrix. Mm -hmm. Yes, Beyond the Matrix especially, where we spoke into specifically so, you know, how worldview and ideologies and the narratives that we live our life by kind of not kind of, but really uh, affects our experience of the world around us, right? So yeah, I would go as far as to say that it governs how the world right. shows up for us and how we engage with it. Right. So if you, so again, if we look at that that one part of the path, right? So again, we're we're moving towards that state of freedom. We're moving towards that state of liberation. The first thing is my view, right? So it's not like oh, well. It's if you're suffering, <laughs> if you're desiring, it's because you ain't looking at things right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so again, not to make it a right or wrong conversation, but like, let's take some of those other words that we can replace Samyak for. And uh, what about a holistic or a balanced way of looking? What, what would, what does that mean? What, what could that mean? A balanced way of viewing the world. My first assumption goes to um, I guess being aware of both what my interpretation is and the facts of the events, like what has actually happened and what I've created based off. Of that. Mm -hmm. And in that way I can balance and navigate, you know, in partnership with reality. And you can be mindful present to suffering and desire desire if you could just be present to there's a desire behind that then you can have knowledge and know well that leads to suffering you know at some point because of this desire um and i and i would actually i want to throw another word in there expectation <laughs> when i you know when i've done coaching with people that's one of the things i always bring up in every coaching session is like look with almost everyone because everyone's got expectations of someone and inevitably their expectations of someone lead to disappointment. And I said, well, that's, that's all you get. <laughs> if you're going to have expectations, expect nothing but disappointment, you know, because you're, because you're in that space. That's, that's part of the desire, right? So expectation. And you, and you actually can't have disappointment without expecting. I mean, they go together. It's the exactly. doubt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yes. And, uh, and I, I mean, I mean, there may be more to that conversation of disappointment. Uh, I don't want to get there too deep. I'm not, I, yeah. There are many <laughs> rabbit holes that may come along during this conversation. I'm not, I don't want to dive down every single one, but yeah, there, there may be a deeper conversation with disappointment, but right now let's assume, yeah. Expectation, disappointment, 
are back and front for each other. They're left and right for each other. They're, <laughs> they're inside they're, and outside. They're inside and outside. <laughs> they go together. Um, and then, okay, so there we go. Right view or holistic view or a balanced view, right? So it's, it takes a presence of mind, which is down on the list of, of, of these eight steps, that presence of mind, right? Which they call right mindfulness in English, mm-hmm which uh, you know, could be looked at as, as a balanced presence or a holistic presence, like being present to the mind, you know, that, they're, that your interpretation of the world around you is happening through worldview, through narratives, through ideologies. And if you can get outside of that and be present to that, well, then you can start to balance the way you look at the world way you view the world. <clears throat> and then next in the line is your intention, right? I, th- I find it interesting even in the order that they present these in. You know, it starts with your view. So the way you're looking at the world, right? And, and then next is typically translated one of two ways, either intention or aspiration. And mm-hmm. if it's a balanced aspiration or balanced intention or a holistic intention that comes from a balanced view, right? Because really you need that balanced view in order to get clear, which is interesting. That's another translation of samyak is clear, clear. right? Clearly, right? So clear intention. And what, what might clear intention be? Well, clear intention might be intention that isn't in some way anchored by some desire, right? The desire to be right, the desire to look good, the desire to have approval or acceptance, right? So if we can clear all those things away with our view, right? We get to That's that powerful, point of man. view. Imagine making your, or having the intentions that lead to the decision-making process, that lead to whatever life experiences and goals and, and things that people are going after, Imagine being clear on what the motive was behind the intent, whether it was to win this battle or to be right or to um, well, and even not in that, be embarrassed. And even in that, yeah. I always, I'm always going down in layers uh, with people. Like I said, like in, yeah. per, like in individual coaching, like my, my intention, my purpose was to win the battle. And well, as a coach, I would say, okay, well, why win the battle? You know, you, because there is something underneath that. And you, mm-hmm. you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, you, you dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually you get to, you know, the desire for approval, the desire for, uh, for acceptance, the desire for looking good, being right. right? Um, there, there's really a handful of things that you can almost dig down under every single intention yeah. You know, because in a lot, and I'm not saying that these people are being uh, malevolent or or deliberately deceitful about their intentions. I believe at a surface level, they believe that the intention was for that because they they really haven't examined that surface level reasoning. And what realistically, I would say the majority of people are just operating automatically. How many mm-hmm. arguments have been spawned and fought on social media or in in person, even that? People are like, yeah, I don't know why I got so fired up or anything, because they're defending some aspect 
that they're completely unaware exist for them. And this is a way, what we're talking about is being mindful of the operations inside the thought process. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, right. am I really wanting to win this fight or this argument or whatever with somebody because of an intention I've created purposefully? Or am I automatically trying to be right or to look good or something like that? Those right. two are huge, by the way. I see those in almost every single person I coach. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, okay, so now we've only made it through. These are just two of the truths. Look at how just powerful just those two are not truths, but the the, the path, right? The, the, eight, two ste- yeah. the first two steps in this eightfold noble path. And uh, I mean, powerful. Pa- like that, that's why this conversation, I feel that, you know, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not... I don't see myself as uh, as a uh, participant of or subscriber of any organized religion. <laughs> However, I do love this part of Buddhism, the, the fourfold noble truth and the eightfold noble path, I believe are such powerful elements. And like I said, I feel like they're at the foundation of even like, if you look at like modern psychoanalysis or CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, like it's pretty difficult to actually separate some of these principles and practices of these ancient traditions from what modern science is using. And like you even have uh, these uh, secular movements in these spiritual traditions, like, like the entire secular world taking on meditation. Well, it does so many great things for my body. And you know what I mean? Like, like that was, those were religious practices. Those were religious traditions. And now, the secular world is adopting it. Like they have mindfulness trainings that have nothing to do with anything spiritual whatsoever. But there, clearly there is power and benefit to presence of mind, right? So, Like there's literally trainings on how meditation can make you a better CEO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and but, and where, it, what is meditation a new thing? No, like, it's no. ancient. It's a very ancient spiritual practice. And so I, I, see, I see a tremendous amount of value. In the in these particular practices, I agree. Um, okay, so step three <laughs> on the eightfold noble path is again translated typically as right speech, but could also mean balanced mm. speech, could mean clear or distinct speech. Right. Okay, remember all or those just... definitions I gave you, all those ways we could translate samyank and. Uh, uh, it, I already said balanced, uh, holistic. holistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So that sounds like, uh, NLP, neuro linguistic programming. Doesn't it? Be present to your words. And actually even some of the work of, uh, uh, and I'm not going to say this is a direct relation. I directly relate it to, because I've done work around like Searle, John Searle's work on effective yeah. communication and speech acts and things like that. I'm like, this is, this is an outgrowth of this principle. And I, and I feel that those are extremely powerful principles and practices and concepts, at least the way I've applied them in business consulting and things like that, like the speech acts and effective communication is profoundly powerful. And here we are, step three in limiting that suffering, right? Getting away from those, that desire and that thirst is brings you from the way you view to intention and aspiration to now speaking, right? 
and speaking in a clear, distinct, balanced, holistic, right way. Intentional, um, conscious right. way. That's the thing yeah. that I see the most is a lot of times language is just thrown around with what they think it means. And right. as soon as I started looking up definitions for what things mean, I had to readjust my entire vocabulary. <laughs> I mean, even still, I'm, I was like, oh, that's just rhetorical. My girlfriend was like, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, shit. shit. I have to go and actually Google that. Because <laughs> so I keep catching things like that that I've been using my entire life and never actually looked at the definition. Right. <laughs> so to me, it's huge in being present and aware to the word choice. Like mm-hmm. it's one of the first things you, you learn in any like transformational center. Is so like, oh, I get to versus I have to. Right. Because well, that's, yeah, to. the personal, personal development work. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's there uh, in that, but that's, again, that's NLP. That's, you mm-hmm. mentioned that with NLP. Um, so but yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely present in a lot of personal development, professional development, um, even in philosophy like of John Searle and whatnot. It's, uh, even though, again, I don't think he would directly tie it to any of those. Um, his, you know, he was just like, Creating action from speech, which is interesting because that's where we're going next. So, number four. Step, exactly, number four. What naturally comes (laughs) out of speech, but action. So, typically uh, translated as right action, uh, but it could also be translated as balanced action or uh, holistic action or distinct or clear action so in Ooh. action that's like uh they say all the old yogis i used to listen to were like when you're walking walk when you're running run when you're sitting sit mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah there's actually uh i i know i'm gonna mutilate this and uh but i believe it's a, a buddhist saying uh before enlightenment uh, gather water. Shoot, what is? It? Gather water and do something like mundane tasks, right? Like, like uh, gather water and cook dinner. You know, that's not what it is. I'm totally <laughs> messing it up right now. But it's a mundane task. The point is, before enlightenment, you do the mundane task. After enlightenment, you do the mundane task. <laughs> it's just, it's it's like nothing really changes. You know, it's not, it's not that you do the mundane task three inches off the ground or anything like that. It's you're, you're, you still engage with life and you still engage. It makes me wish I was a cartoonist so I could draw up like before and after enlightenment series. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like dude going through his day and doing the exact same thing going through his day. And that's, and that's the point of that particular saying is that it's not that it doesn't really change. What changes you don't see on the surface of one's day-to-day actions. It's right. in their personal experience of the world that's really all the, that's where all the changes happen, right? So he may not be experiencing, you know, the enlightened one who's still fetching water. Oh, that's what it is, fetching water and something else. He's still fetching water and whatever other ma- mundane task he's doing. Doing the but, but his, Yeah, but his experience is different. Oh, there is actually one about uh, clean, clean, the, clean the bowl wash the bowl. So there's a, many, many sayings about enlightenment and the mundane tasks. Um, 
and some may even be koans and whatnot. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's interesting because again, if we if we look at our our our, uh, our procession so far, this this process that we've gone through. Now here we find ourselves at, at action, and it's like, well, have had you not started with view, gotten clear on the view, the intention, and the words, the speech, could you have this balanced action? You know, so it's it almost it feels like a progression, right? That yeah, it does. that it's yeah, you start with like my views, right? Like how I'm interpreting the world, which is. You know, like you said, it's like you can't separate it from that worldview and the narratives and the ideologies that you've adopted knowingly and unknowingly. Um, But without getting a clear view of that and being able to shift the narratives and shift the worldview such that you're now viewing from a balanced, unbiased, clear, you know, however you want to translate that samyant. you're, I really like how do you get to sorry go ahead yeah no that's that's fine intentional yeah <laughs> and it actually it can I believe that is one of the one of the ways you could translate it um it just wouldn't make sense with number three because then you'd have intentional intention <laughs> but <laughs> but that's often sometimes translated as aspirations you could have intentional aspiration but you I don't know about intentional intention right it's well, I, you could tautology. because like if I'm not intentional with my intent, and I'll kind of separate the words that way, then my intent may be to be right, like we were talking about, automatically, unintentionally. Right. That's what I was like, okay, if you're really being intentional with what you're intending. Right. Well, <laughs> what, actually, I think, that's, I, think that's a, I think that's a conversation for another day as well, because uh, in the work that I've done, I've always made a distinction of that, the concept of integrity. And that that's how you distinguish integrity. Um, If you think, (laughs) if if this is your intention, and if your intention and your actions and your results do not line up, that's where you have a failure in integrity. So livelihood, I look at as like, okay, this is your, this is the day-to-day application of the other four, right? Livelihood is is practice, right? It's, it's habitual now. So it's taking these principles from single circumstances, single events, right? Because uh, the way you're thinking can be uh, for any one set of circumstances and conditions can be seen as an event. Any speech or, or any specific or individual intention that you may have, we can separate as a specific event. Um, this is now the embodiment. It's like make taking these, the the action, the speech, the intention, and the um, uh, view, and incorporating it in a habitual way in a day to day process. So, and again, so making I, it embodied, making it a habit, yes. making it uh, just the automatic process. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think you can make it an automatic process as we get, as we move down, da- as we move down the line here, um, because it's there's nothing automatic about it. It's okay. it's it's like you said. Put it. You could you could um, 
replace that samyang with intentional, right? There's nothing, right, right. you can't be automatic and intentional, right? It's, so it's... Uh, that takes a practice, that takes um, right. dedication and consistency. Right. I see what you mean. Okay. Okay, so that's how I see that one. Um, just it's so it's about integration, embodiment of the, of the principles, and then the next one is uh, effort. So you have we could look at it again, typically translated as right effort, but you could look at it as a as a balanced effort, as a holistic effort, as an intentional effort, as clear or distinct effort. So. Effort, this is an interesting concept because it's, uh, so up until now, you know, view and intention and speech, right? Uh, these are, these are very much, you know, personal, right? And, and, uh, and can be seen as, uh, active. I don't know if that's really the word I'm looking at uh, or proactive. Um, and then we moved into uh, action and livelihood. This effort one, this one, it's, it's like the precursor to action, right? It's the effort is the precursor to, to, uh, the, the effort must be there before there is the speech, before there is the intention, before there is the action, before there is livelihood. Effort speaks to something else, more intangible kind of uh, principle. So what is the difference between action and effort? Because when I think about effort, I think I'm putting in the effort to no, effort know, is take an act. Effort is behind action. Meaning action is, can, is the whatever act you consider connecting, right? So effort is, uh, is, 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 like I said, like a precursor. It's, it's, it's there before there is action. It's there before there is speech, right? Is it, so is it like, like for instance, motivation? No. Um, okay. No, no. Because motivation... Can speak to something external, okay? Uh, okay? Like somebody whipping you with a bullwhip may motivate you to do something and take some action, <laughs> right. right? But it's not. That's okay. not what effort is. Um, so, effort is again. If now let's look at in the way that it's that it's presented here as a as a balanced effort. So. Uh, so and what would an unbalanced effort look like? Like exertion beyond uh, what is reasonable or ne- exert, not enough exertion to achieve the, the, the action or to, uh, or to effectuate the action in, in an... I in, think about a like a car that's the right two wheels drive and the left two don't. You'd end up kind of like... <laughs> Right. In circles. right. So, so this balanced effort is, uh, I guess you could look at it as 
it's funny because we also have, uh, I, f I find a relationship here with that and uh, intention or aspiration, right? So there, there's a similar quality to this one with, with the second one, um, which is inspiration or aspiration. So effort is, is like that. It's, it's more etheric, mm -hmm. less tangible. Um, but also I'd say that the focus on this one, if we're going to use the English word of effort, would be that of a balanced effort, right? Of, uh, of not forcing, right? A balanced effort would be not be forcing something, right? Um, yeah. If you're forcing something, clearly there's attachment or a desire, right? That, that may be behind the forcing. Of like something. you're giving enough, you're not giving too much or too little. It's right. It's just a balanced effort. Right. Like, right. Uh, like a lot of people will think, well, if I work harder, I'm feeling tired. If I just push through these walls that I have for myself, then I'll be more productive. And people right. have found that if you stop and take a 30 minute break or get the sleep that, you know, eight hours of sleep in a night, then you'll actually get more done in less time when you come back to work. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I, I can see it in that type of way, the effort that you're putting into the act of working. Right. If it's balanced and it's not too much, too little um, distracted, if you're like right in it, you can be incredibly productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, okay, so where are we at? <laughs> okay, so now, okay, now, now it gets interesting. So we've done livelihood, effort, and now comes mindfulness. Okay. So, so typically translated as right mindfulness. And again, if we look at the many ways we could translate samyak, it could be, and, and even how you and I may use the word mindfulness. I know that that's, that's actually a, a, a word that has been so, so overused in the last couple of decades that it's, it's, it's a word that most people are actually familiar with. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, the word mindfulness didn't have much meaning. Um, I feel nowadays that there's definitely a, there's, it definitely carries meaning for, for most people, at least in the West. for a lot of people. And... Yeah. How would you define mindfulness? Because I feel like it's something that's um, I, uh, like typically, I can be easily confused with presence or awareness. Well, that's or that's actually I actually use that to simplify it for people. I use I usually use presence, presence of mind, um, mm -hmm. and being present to is is, is it, I equate to mindfulness because mindfulness kind of has this. I would say because of how in the Western world we, how we look at the mind. Now, mindfulness is out of using that same phraseology in Eastern traditions doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. And it like what we, what we in the West think of as mind, most of the time is thought of as brain, is thought of as thinking. So it's not it may not be a good word because in this, in this context, it comes out of the East where, where the mind in the Eastern culture is here, is located here. Can you even see that? Yeah. Right. In the chest, you know, right. Yeah. This is mind. You know, we place the mind here. 
you know, and uh, so there's a headiness to mindfulness in Western interpretations of that. So presence kind of takes it out of the braininess of it. And so for me, it, it, I feel like it, it gets more to the point that I'm going to try to make with a Western audience in that it's not really about thinking, right? As opposed to, you know, like, like some of the work we've done around presence, right? Is about taking a step out of your active interpretation of, of the events around you. So it's like, it's like um, being outside of, of interpretation in that you can see the interpretation happening. And this is why transcendental meditation and mindful meditation and things like that have become such powerful practices because it, that's what you're doing is you're, you're breathing deeply, closing the eyes, and separating yourself from your senses. The senses are still at work, meaning there are still smells in the air, there are still sounds, um, there, there's even taste in your mouth, and there's even tactile feeling around your body, but you're in, the, in that practice, right, of, of meditation, you're separating yourself from being embedded in the interpretation of those senses, uh, from being just the processor of those senses. You, you've separated and you kind of just watch the senses happen. You watch thoughts happen. You, 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 you get outside of them, right? So there's a, that's the presence to that those senses are are occurring but you're not caught up in the interpretation of the senses meaning sounds are occurring but you can you can observe them just as sounds rather than giving those those sounds meaning which is what you would typically do if you were if you weren't in a state of mindfulness or state of presence you know you hear a sound and you automatically think oh car alarm you know, somebody's, somebody's trying to break into a car or somebody accidentally just, you know, ran into a car or whatever. You're like, you're caught up in the interpretation of that sound. The Whereas, interpretation, the identification, right, the meaning, right. what, like, is someone trying to get in my house? Is someone trying, you know, someone driving a car? There's all of what we write after. It reminds me of that, um, that meditation we did of Alan Watts's on, on Spotify. It's like 16 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. Where the one with the music, he has, yeah, he yeah, has cool. he guided us through listening to the outside world, the birds, uh, as if it's just listen. one big orchestra. Yeah, yeah, it's called listen, listen, <laughs> <laughs> listen. And then he switched to listening to the thoughts and listening to the feelings and everything else internally, and then letting the wall between the two kind of blur and vanish as if it's just one happening yeah that's cool yeah and that's and and again that's that level of mindfulness or presence allows you to really give it allows you to embody these up until now these previous six principles in a way that you can effectively 
have power with each of them, meaning like the right, the, the view, right? The, the balanced view. You, in that state where of presence, you can distinguish your, the ideologies, the narratives, your worldview that are all affecting your interpretation of events around you. Um, so it's, it's, it's an important part. <laughs> it's a, very significant to be able to, to be in that state of presence for, all, for any of these really to work. Um, because otherwise you're caught up in the English translation of it, of right, right? Oh, well, there's, that's, you're not speaking right, okay? And that's typically how, how in the West we have, uh, within our traditions, we have a, a certain sets of, of ethics, moralities, things like that, that we have a judgment of, well, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And we kind of just break things down that way. That's just, it's part of our worldview. Which really is a collapse. uh, It's really collapsed from this is the good way, this is the bad way to do it. It, It's it's one and the same. You know what I mean? Right way, yeah, right way, wrong way, good way, bad way. What I'm saying is this isn't about distinguishing it that way. That's not what these are. Uh, what I'm saying is without this state, without this presence, especially having being brought up in the Western world, your tendency will be to have that right, wrong, good, bad uh, way of interpreting these, these, uh, Separation these principles, right? Yeah. Well, you, you, you will look at it as well, that this is the right way to things this is the right way to speak and this is the right way to act and this so this this mindfulness this presence allows us to transcend that translation of this word this the sanskrit word of samyang that is typically translated as right we can translate it as keep it down okay um, <laughs> he wants to, he wants to turn on the TV in the room. Uh, I'm like, all right, yeah, it's cool. Just keep down the volume. Uh, so it, 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 they translated as what it, tra- it the Samyank in without this inter without this practice, without this presence of mind, the translation of Samyank, the, the, the way it's translated in the Western world as right you could not elevate it or transcend that right, wrong, good, bad way of seeing these steps in the path, right? These eight steps in the path. You would just, that's how you would just, that's how you, that's the only way you could distinguish it without kind of getting outside of that, that uh, automatic interpretation that you're in without being present or mindful. So it's a, ne- it's a necessary element. And once you're in that state of presence or mindfulness, this word, this samyank, can can elevate to balanced or could elevate to whole or holistic or conscious or what you said, intentional or distinct or clear. It, it can elevate because it's not, it, now it's not about a dichotomy. It's not about this versus this which is how we typically would distinguish something like this, especially something out of a tradition, because that's how we see our own traditions, right? The 10 commandments were that you do this, 
you know, you do this, you don't do this. You do this, you don't do this, right? <laughs> that's, that's how it is. It's like these, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad, right? But that's not, that's not what these are. These aren't moralities, right? This, these are practices for alleviating suffering, for elevating oneself, for transcending suffering. Um, now this, it reminds me of a, a coaching call that I had last week, actually, where after all of the conversation and all the stuff that we had been talking about, she's like, this is amazing. This stuff is incredibly powerful. But um, why? <laughs> why what? I'm like, she's like, why is it important? I'm like, not necessarily saying that working on things like your speech and how you view the world and your intentions, your declarations, all that stuff is important. But it's kind of clear to me now that really the question was like, how do I use this? What's the point of understanding these types of mechanisms and right. utilizing them? Because I think really where the thought process was coming from is how will this change the thing that I'm working against? <laughs> right. And I, and I would say, how does very, it change my job? How does it change my boss? How does and it I, change And I would whatever? say the very simple answer to that question uh, is twofold to transcend suffering and to experience freedom. Yeah. And you don't have where to. I'm noticing now. <laughs> and is, that's, and that's even the nature of this tradition of these teachings, this particular yeah. doctrine, it's not saying you have to do shit. It's not like, it oh, it doesn't say don't it, suffer. It, and it, exactly. It doesn't say you must suffer. It doesn't say you must not suffer. It's like, look, people suffer. <laughs> That's number one. Truth. It doesn't even people say suffer. you will suffer. No, <laughs> it's just saying, hey, people suffer. Um, and there's, there's a cause to the suffering. And here's a process you can go through to limit it. But it's not saying you have to follow this process. It's not saying you have to limit suffering. You know, this mm -hmm. is, so again, in the Western world, typically this eightfold noble path is translated like the 10 commandments, you know, like, Oh, well, <laughs> right, right. I got to follow this. You know, I got to do these things. Check, check, check. Um, otherwise I'm not going to get to Buddhist heaven, you know, um, which I guess is Cause really like the way that thing. I ended up engaging with that question ended up being like, well, do you want to suffer through it? <laughs> I didn't say it in those words. It was more like, well, what type of experience do you want to have while engaging with your work and your boss and whatever else, the things that are in your life, the things that you love so much or the things that you, you, know, you hate so much? Mm -hmm. What type of experience do you want to have? And then she, I think it kind of clicked where she's like, oh, yeah, so I guess that's the power of this. I can you know, create experience. Right. or shape or mold experience. And I, number one, I don't think many people see that as an option. It's just, right. this is my experience and that's the way that it is. Or really understand that it's malleable, it's beneficial, it's something um, that if, if you really want to engage with is incredibly powerful. Like changing, even after a certain aspect of that coaching session, was about uh, a process of healing. Everyone talks about we need to heal the racial divide. We need to heal these tra traumatic events. We need to heal X, Y, and Z. And 
I was talking with her about, well, okay, give me something that you've healed. She gave me an event. I said, awesome. So did the event change? Nope. Okay, so then what changed? Like, well, I don't know. I'm like, did your relationship to the event change? Did the way that you describe the event, is the way that the event impacts you today, did any of that change? It's like, actually, all of that. The way that I hold that event, my relationship to the event, my experience of the event, everything has changed for me, except for the event itself. Right. (laughs) And that's, and I would say that that's That's the power. And that's the perfect demonstration of this process as we've described it. Because that, I mean, really, it's like you you could break it down as a, uh, you know, make yourself out to be some kind of Zen master and say, ah, well, it, it comes down to your right view. (laughs) right Mm -hmm. because that that's really it's that that's what shifted was her interpretation of of events right that's step one so i mean she's already uh, dramatically affected her her suffering around an event by step one (laughs) right (laughs) step one right view right she didn't even know that's what was going on right (laughs) but that's but that is it and that's why again that's why i feel this is just such a, a simple, it's so simple. And uh, it's why I, I like it so much. This, this particular set of principles, the, the fourfold noble truth and the eightfold noble path, it's just simple, um, easy to remember. And I mean, really, if you, if you remember the first three, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Really, if you chose to just work on one of these at a time. Yeah, you're, you're good, like view. See how they were. In, intention, speech, <laughs> you got it, you know, like work on that, work on that. When you're, when you got that mastered and wired, then you can look at the rest. Um, so it's really, it's not even hard to remember. Uh, mm-hmm. And then finally the eighth, now this is interesting. Cause this is, I feel like the concept of Samadhi could be, could probably be a series, but it's, uh, we could definitely dedicate an entire show to it, but it's, I feel like it's so poorly translated, uh, from the Sanskrit to English in that it's, it's translated as right concentration. And, uh, yeah, I don't, That's the last one. Yeah. I don't think that cuts it at all. Um, for one, let's look at, the, the principle of samadhi. Um, and again, this is something that is present in, in many Eastern traditions, but you know, specifically Hinduism, Jainism, made its way east into Buddhism, uh, well, Central Asia Buddhism, as well as Far East Buddhism, um, and is really still present, at least as a principle or concept, even within Far Eastern forms of Buddhism like Chan, or Zen, uh, it's, uh, gosh, it's rather than looking at it as, as right concentration. So like, let's look at all the things we've talked about so far. Let's look at concentration. Well, no, because I, I feel like it's a really shitty translation. I think let's, let's get rid of concentration. Let's take it off okay. the table because it's a let's very, that. yeah, scrap it. It's a very poor let's think translation. This through. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, take it off the table completely. We're going to replace yeah. it completely. So if we look at um, all the 
concepts that we've gone through so far, this, the seven, the first seven steps here of the yeah. Eightfold Noble Path, um, especially view, intention, um, and mindfulness. Well, I think I want to say if taking those three, we can maybe create a model. No, let's just go for it. <laughs> okay. So, so Samadhi is, it's like us being in a state of that presence, right? That we talked about in the last step, that presence, that mindfulness where not only where you are clear of the illusion of the self. Okay. So God, I really didn't even want to bring this in. Let me, let me ask a question real quick. So concentration, could it be like Jinji? No, get concentration out of it. That's why I want you to get it out of here. Cause you're going to think of shit like focus. No. All right. All Take right, it off the right. table. I'm get it out it. of here. It's a I'm very crappy it. translation. Um, <laughs> don't, don't, don't make excuses for these people. All right. We're <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to justify them. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> so remember I brought up the concept of illusion of self. So what, let's say if we take the concept of this mindfulness, this presence where you actually can see that all that experience, the, the sensual experience, the, 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 the experiences of all the senses, as well as thoughts that run through the mind and everything else, that all of that is illusory. It is not you. And it is not, or I should say, it's not the essence of you. And by, by being able to be outside of it, okay, that being outside of it and being free of the illusion of the self or, or in Western philosophy, being free of the ego, that is Samadhi. Okay. So it's not about concentration, concentration, so like, concentration so like, puts you into the ego. So it, <laughs> it, it'd be like, it's, it's, it's a state of being free of the ego. Okay. So it's like maintaining the difference so that that doesn't collapse as if it's the same. It containing the difference. Uh, I'm grasping. I would say, here. I would say, yeah, I would say, be, well, how does, did, did, uh, free of it not click with you? Um, you're free of the illusion of, it's funny because I'm, I'm just going to keep saying the same words over and over and hope that this has the same meaning to Gingy that it has to me. Um, <laughs> but, but being free of, the illusion of the self right. being free, free of, of the ego, illusion. like clear that the, the shadow on the cave wall <laughs> is not reality. Okay. That, right. That that's to assume that once that line is drawn, like why I think they use the word that I'm blocking out of my brain right now mm -hmm. is because it's a constant practice of maintaining. Well, it's that a, yeah. line of that distinction can be drawn and like, yes, now no, I know I'm But yeah, but it's not that. It, and that's why I say it's it such a shitty translation because you're, you're using those faculties you should be free of to do right. that. Right? right. So that it's, it's almost like the opposite, you know, in, in, in fact, I mean, I, yeah, I guess it, def, 
depends on how you want to define concentration, but let's just take a dictionary definition of it. Yeah, no, it's not adequate. It does not cut the mustard here. It is, it is wholly insufficient for what this So what is being free of that mean? It, that's the word, samadhi. <laughs> but to right, be there free is, of Okay, here's the thing. There right. is no English translation for this. And that's, I mean, many of these words, there are no direct English translations. And that's why I like to start with the Sanskrit, the, you know, so that we can work into an English translation. Because a lot of times to get close to a translation, it really takes creating a context and then kind of placing concepts in and ideas inside this context in order to convey this word, you know, and, and right. the, the meaning of it. Um, so yeah, don't try to, you know, don't search your brain for all the English word that I can put here. No, there, it, <laughs> it doesn't exist. There, it, there is no word for it. So that's why we're going to, what I'm trying to do is create a context and place within it concepts and ideas that are, together convey the meaning right. of, of this, of this word, samadhi. The, um, the reason I asked that is because, uh, an idea pops into my mind when thinking about this, that to be free of the illusion is, is one thing. And then to, how about to transcend, to, maintain, to transcend like to maintain the, the illusion. And still, I, that that feels blurry, or I don't necessarily know what that means to be free of it or to transcend it. In my mind, the mo the closest thing I can rationalize, and this is like using ego to do this, is to maintain the distinction between the two. No. So, <laughs> see again, I'm like, shit. <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's I, I I see what you're doing, um, <clears throat> and what you're doing is it's a it's a practice of of that thing that you're free of. So you're mm -hmm. attempting to do something with something that you can't, that can't be done. For instance, uh, let's have a conversation about consciousness. Uh, can't be done. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, it's the turning the, the camera on the monitor. You know, if you turn the camera on the monitor, you just get crazy feedback. You know, the, you don't get, you don't get anything. You don't get a clear, image or concept or anything else. And that's what you're attempting to do. You're attempting to take the thing that you must completely eliminate to give your, to give us some adequate image or picture of what it is we're talking about here. Um, and it's well, something like, that's, it, that's free of like images the... and objects and, and interpretations. <laughs> and it, I, so just I, like in, it, in it how people a, identify themselves in Oh, I, I am my body. I am my thoughts. I am my mind. I am my personality. I am my job. I am my relationship. Whatever it is, right? All of that is illusory. Holding that distinction. No, stop saying holding. Stop saying maintaining. Stop saying Hear holding. Me <laughs> Hear me out. I'm trying to explain why I'm using those words. Because in maintaining that distinction, I'm like all of those things that I could identify myself with are not the truth of the matter. They're just other things I could identify with. Okay. A certain level. So if I say take, okay, so let's take the idea presented there and eliminate okay. all the language of it and elevate it to a state. You're getting close. Like a state of being. 
Yes. Okay. Or a state of How... consciousness would probably right. be more accurate. It's it's hard to comprehend. It is. It is. And that's, and I mean, I get that Purposely, this is why, like yeah, it, it, yeah, it kind of is. It, it's, it's almost, it, it's funny when you get into uh, some of the Eastern traditions and which is really where we're at now, because now we've gotten to the fourth, the fourth of the noble truths. We've gone through all eight of the noble path and now we're at the well, fourth noble truth. And that's nirvana. So what would you define as the eighth noble, fourth of the uh, noble path? It's Samadhi. <laughs> I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it in the Sanskrit word and okay. get what you can from that out of what we just had as a conversation. But it's, I would say it's a, it's a transcendent state of consciousness, transcendent state of consciousness. And it's, and it really, and in this context of the eightfold noble path, it's practicing that's being in that state. Hmm. So it's, a, it's about, because I wonder if transcending the illusory self. That's what I mean. That's what it is. It's a practice of transcending the ego, transcending the illusory self. That's what it. That's the the general concept of this eighth step. Okay. And it and I would say I most and it's and transcendental meditation things like that are most often the the practices employed for this particular uh, stuff. Okay. Now it clicks for me. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to think like, how do you go throughout your day? <laughs> yeah. Like practicing Samadhi. Nah. You, yeah. Really. That's, that's why meditation is such a powerful practice within this because it does offer the ability to practice the, the transcendence or right. the freedom of ego and all that stuff because you can create that separation within mm -hmm. and say none of that it's right and the more you do that the more you practice that the more it just is the and the more effective you are with step seven that waking mindfulness yeah. and presence right so yeah. that so it, it it really that samadhi that eighth step enhances and gives you more power with the other seven steps Okay, fourth, noble truth, nirvana. I'm glad we hashed that one out because now I finally feel like that. Yeah, yeah. Brought in and, meditation. And it's, and it's, again, it's one of those things you can't have a conversation. It's like... Uh, or, or fucking define. In, yeah. In the yeah. use of language. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it, it, we, you can get into the same thing with like Chan or Zen. Um, it's, it's, uh, we'll get into it someday. And we'll have a conversation just like this one, a conversation about something you can't really have a conversation about and try to describe something that can't really be described. Chocolate uh, or vanilla. Yeah. So uh, the fourth, but they, it, it's actually, uh, yeah, I don't know if I got the order right, but it definitely, it makes more sense in a presentation to end here with the fourth noble truth, which is Nirvana. And Nirvana is the experience, right, of, of complete freedom of complete uh, a state of non-suffering, right? a state free of suffering. And typically it's like in, in many, especially the Far Eastern traditions of, of, uh, of these particular philosophies, 
they've, they've adopted uh, a concept known as Satori. And Satori is, uh, it's like a moment. It's like a momentary experience of Nirvana. Uh, and primarily it, it was, it's been adopted as a concept because a, I think many in the West look at like when they, especially when they look at these Eastern traditions and doctrines, they look at it like, Oh, that's the goal is to get to Nirvana. Right? <laughs> and I mean, and you've, I've seen, you know, you know, nutballs walking around like, well, I'm there. I've achieved it. I'm in Nirvana. Or naming and, their, uh, their sinners Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to get into it. That, that that uh, that should be in my I, I should do a satire woke a woke satire show and i can make fun <laughs> of all these enlightened fools um but it's uh i think it speaks more to a potentiality of freedom from suffering not that anyone would ever actually choose it um and I think that's how it's seen in, especially in the Far East traditions is that like, you know, they have a, uh, like I said, the concept of Satori, which is a, a moment of, a, of, of this complete separation from the illusory reality and, and a complete state of Nirvana, but it, it's, it's fleeting. It's not, it's not uh, permanent and it is not a state that you enter for any length of time. And I think, again, having a, a worldview steeped in Western traditions, we, we have a tendency to translate it as that, like, oh, that's, that's heaven, right? So it's because in Western tradition, it's like, oh, well, you either burn in hell for eternity or you are bored to death in heaven by, you know, sitting around and playing stringed instruments you know what list out for yeah. all of eternity yeah and so that's kind of how we've that's kind of how we have interpreted this nirvana right is that it's uh that it's this our equivalent of heaven it's a it's a heavenly state I, dude i i just watched i don't remember what episode it was some kind of tv show last week and this girl was like you know i think i might try out being lesbian and her sister was like oh you're going to go to hell. And she's like, good. All the cool people are in hell. <laughs> and I was like, she's kind of got a point. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that, gonna make there's a actually uh there's a song by the streets and, uh, and yeah, you know, you know, my propensity and my music skills. So I'm going to, I'm going to mutilate it here, but I'll give you a gist of what it is of the okay. chorus. And it's all, uh, I want to want to go to hell for the company. Or I want to go to heaven for the weather. Hell for the company. <laughs> so he wants to go to heaven for the weather because uh, you know assumption is it's sunny and sunny and warm sunny all the time. 75. Yeah, sunny and seventy-five <laughs> all the time, but. I want to go to hell for the company because that's where all the exciting, you know, people who shunned all the uh, religious, uh, I guess, doctrines and, and, and rules. And that's where they ended up, 
right? So the parties are down in hell, the good weather's up in heaven, and he wanted the boast about both worlds, so want go to heaven for the weather, hell for the company. So, but it's, yeah, and again, this is superimposing. When we take our traditions and we superimpose them on Eastern traditions, we, we make that mistake. And it's not necessarily... Uh, it's not necessarily like where you end up if you're a good Buddhist, which is how most Westerners would interpret Buddhism. It's like, oh, well, I just got to follow these eight steps and then I'm going to end up on a lotus with Buddha and Nirvana. You know what I mean? I because don't want to be in hell suffering. Right. And, but that's, <laughs> they're superimposing that, that Western view of, of, right. of reality onto Eastern philosophies and traditions, which they don't match up because, for one, they're founded in completely different worldviews, so they don't. There is no reconciling those two views. So uh, I would say in, the, in, in our conversation here, in, in speaking of, of, uh, of the path to freedom, right? So we're not looking at like, uh, like nirvana as freedom necessarily, uh, right. but the process that we've discussed up through now um, the, the Eightfold Noble Path, really, we could see as the path to freedom in that by, by being mindful and present and, and aware of the, the, the root intentions behind our actions and our words and, and the worldviews and narratives and ideologies that drive our view of, the, of reality – that by by entering in a state uh, into, into a state of awareness and presence with those things, there is there's the capacity and the power with that the suffering that you experience in the world, and so that can dramatically reduce and relieve that those experiences of suffering and bring you into a state of we could call it freedom in that there is very limited amount of suffering. And when there, whenever there is an experience that could be likened to suffering, uh, having these practices at hand and being able to call upon them to like look at something, right? It's, it's an opportunity to look at where is the attachment here. And, and, it's, and again, it's not, like I said, it's not a, this isn't a, a list of commandments. And in fact, attachment and desire are something you don't really want to give up. I would say that, I mean, look at, um, look at relationships. Now, I've been in relationships both ways. 99% of my relationships have been, there's been some level of attachment. In the few relationships where I, ha where I have been able to, and been mindful of eliminating any attachment um, or expectation within the relationship were the only relationships where there was no, there was no suffering. There was no experience of, of being wronged or, 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 or doing wrong or, or it was just, it was like, yeah, it was just a, yeah. it was just a, uh, it was a very uh, rewarding experience in that there is an extraordinary amount of love, appreciation, gratitude, without, you know, jealousy or hatred or anger or betrayal. Like none of that was present at all within the, within the relationship. 
And so I, I could look at that and say that it is very powerful to have a relationship without attachment. And yet I also have children. I have three children. And I love my attachment to my children. Does that make sense? Like I, I don't want to not be attached to them. I don't want to let go of my attachment to them. Um, knowing that, yes, suffering can come out of my attachment to my children. And, and in fact, it has. But that's also where the deep emotional, like some people call it love. Right. That's where that type of emotion comes from, too, when well, you're it, attached to the children. Right. But again, it's also there's nothing wrong with the other feelings that come out of that attachment. Right. See, we, I don't want to equate freedom here to the abolition of suffering. Okay. Remember, we said limit. To abolish it would be to turn yourself into some kind of automaton. And because without it, you, there, you don't have the opposite of it. You don't have joy without hurt. You know, they, they just, you know, we're, we get back into the Tao here. They're balanced. They define each other. Right. You don't have uh, ecstasy without uh, pain and suffering. You know, those, they, they define each other. If you eliminate all that stuff you think you don't want to feel, well, all the stuff you think you want to feel becomes non-feeling because there's nothing to <laughs> distinguish it. You know what I mean? So it's just there are people who are in a tremendous amount of suffering. You know, people who are deeply depressed, like 90% of their life, they're always in a state of depression or anxiety. Um, and again, and that's that comes out of that view. Again, step one of the path of eight could eliminate <laughs> so much, <laughs> of, much that. All of this. Yeah. Because well, if you think about it, anxiety typically is some, some way of viewing and interpreting a perceived future because of course it hasn't even happened and it's not even necessarily gonna happen. And even if it does is worrying or having anxiety about it, changing it. No, it's only giving you that experience that you're having. And then depression is typically connected to view of the past. So your, your view, and like you said, with your coaching client, that the, at one point you had, a, you know, in that discussion, she recognized the transformation of her relationship with a past event, you know, so that, that eliminates depression because you can now in, in looking back at that event, there aren't those feelings and that experience of depression that comes up, which would have been coming up had she held on to that other view. So, so again, and that's why I don't even like to like, again, Nirvana ain't the goal and abolition of suffering ain't the goal, but those, that process can have you limit the amount of suffering and really limit it to the point of choice. Like you can actually be very intentional in what you want to suffer about. Um, I'm not always, but I like to like, <laughs> like there are certain days where I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be in my shit today, you know? Um, and, and, you know, be sad and be angry and, and like, and I'm just in it and I, and I go in all the way and I like throw any like, you know, eating healthy out the window. I'm like, I'm going to eat, eat a, two pints of ice cream. I'm going to eat a large pizza. I'm going to drink some beers. Like, I'm just like, you know, like 
to, to hell with it all. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and, and really right. it's, it's those moments where I really embrace the suffering that make the not suffering so awesome. You know, if I were to completely eliminate all suffering in my life, there would be no, there would really be no good. There would be no highlight to the life. I like to think about it like this. If, if I were to always get what I wanted, mm -hmm. that would get old quick. Yeah. There would be no fun. There'd be no challenge. There'd be no up and down. There'd be no diversity. Right. Now, if like, if I always got like my money that I needed, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be even worth my time considering it or thinking about it or, or planning to accumulate more or saving or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. The whole game goes out the window. And so I always keep in mind that whatever it is that I'm thirsting for, that that's what makes the thing so sweet. That if I'm, if my thirst is quenched, there's no, there's no fun there. There's no, pleasure there there's all that stuff that i'm really looking to be gratified with is gone right. like if i'm like i just want to eat a pizza every single day and i like okay perfect example if i'm like craving cigarettes and i'm like okay i'm just gonna i wish i could smoke cigarettes every day in my life which is a point i used to be at and i'm like i just i wish it was good for me i would do it all day every day <laughs> And then I went to like a, a party with, well not a party, but like a camping weekend with my buddy and I smoked an entire pack of cigarettes in one day. And I was oh, wow. like, the first time I'd ever done it in my life. <laughs> <laughs> how, just because we were your, sitting in front of a how camping was your, How was your throat the next day? Uh, it wasn't too bad. But oh, nice. The joy of smoking those cigarettes was gone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, I'm not even enjoying these things anymore. I just right. like what it's just part of what I do. And it's like the reason that I did want to smoke all day every day was because I enjoyed it. Right. But when I was doing it all day every day, I didn't enjoy it. Right. And so that's like the bittersweet, you know, quenching of your thirst that happens if you were to actually get rid of all suffering. Right. And only be in bliss and pleasure all day every day. Right. Like that's actually what people take medications for on both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I always feel this way and I want to change. Right. Or I always feel this way, but I want to change. Or I never feel anything. I wish I could be on one side or the other. Then right. they take medication for it. Like those are actual prescriptions that exist for people. Yeah. Because they're too happy all the time, or they're not happy enough all the time, or they never feel anything all that's a trip to me. So that's yeah. the thing I always try to frame these conversations with is, okay, so what happens if you always get with it? Will you still want it? What happens if you're totally free? What happens if you're totally free from everything? Always. Now... Having said that, because I feel like that's a really important part of the conversation, bringing in that, um, that it's not about the abolition of suffering, that this freedom is, is really, we are free to suffer as well. Um, however, most people experience being enslaved by their state of 
depression, anxiety, suffering in many different ways. It is a conversation about freedom and the path to freedom. And having, taking into consideration the, the concepts and the principles that we have talked about, the practices that you could incorporate or embody, I feel like the next logical place to go to is what people typically, if you talk about freedom, right? What is a person thinking of and how would they relate to that word within this reality, within their reality? So, and I think oftentimes people would look at circumstances and conditions outside of themselves. So for instance, the, the, the society you live in, um, typically, right. Uh, is here in the, here in America, right. We have this concept of being a free country, right. We have freedom of expression, uh, and other things like that. And many people feel that there's a lack of freedom within this country. And, and some people think there should be a lack of freedom in this country. So, <laughs> so there's, there's that. And then, and, and looking at, okay, so how does everything we just talked about, how does that relate to the conversation of one's experience? And you, you spoke into this at the very beginning was the experience of freedom, right? At least that's, that's what I made up when you used that phrase was there's the experience of freedom. Okay. And what I would equate that to is looking at outside circumstances and conditions, the events around me as if they determine or dictate my freedom. And I would say in this conversation, what I hope gets across is that there's a much deeper level of freedom that can be experienced. Actually, if you look at the book by what's his name? Uh, Victor Frankl, right? Where he talks about his experiences in concentration camp. And those were powerful. Yeah. And how he experienced, uh, you know, uh, a really, again, my, what I got from it was at some level at a certain point, he he experienced a deep level of freedom because he realized that he had freedom in how he interpreted, how he reacted to, how he engaged the world of the concentration camp. Right? And so, and I feel like that's, that's a profound conversation to have in that it, it speaks into, for one, the, everything we've been talking to up until this point, that you can dwell into a, a, a deep, a world of deep suffering, or you can elevate and transcend to a, uh, to, into a world of very little suffering. And, uh, and, a, and a high level of appreciation, gratitude, and love, and, and acceptance, and, and compassion, and all of that, as opposed to, you know, resentment, and anger, and hatred, and depression, and anxiety, and, and suffering. <clears throat> so, if we, if we look at the outside of the world as something that dictates our internal experience, um, and, and I feel this is, I mean, not that it's been talked about directly, but I feel like we've touched on this in many levels in previous, in previous shows that we've done both in sure. beyond the matrix 
and do we have free will? Um, and even in the last one we did on uh, World on Fire, I believe that in all of those, we touch on this in some way, shape, or form. And, and, I, and I definitely believe it's this extraordinarily important or significant topic for the world we're in right now, the, the reality around us and what's happening. I believe that these are very powerful tools and a very powerful way of thinking and seeing the world such that we can elevate and transcend any suffering that we may be experiencing because of what we make up about what's happening. There's um, a couple of things that I feel like bringing it full circle, the difference between having freedom and experiencing is, is key. And everything that we went through with, um, with Buddhism, I think are amazing tools for experiencing and experiencing freedom. I think the, a lot of people, at least that I've coached and that I've engaged with, they're not necessarily taking feeling victimized by circumstances and conditions. It's usually one circumstance or one condition that they're seeking to have freedom from. So like if it's a job or if it's poverty or if it's relationships or if it's whatever else, there's something that they're experiencing suffering around and they're seeking to have freedom from that suffering. And I would go, and what I would say is the issue is never the issue and you alleviate that one particular event and they get a brand new job and guess what? The suffering continues. <laughs> because it's it's really it's it really is it's their thinking it's their way of interpreting the world that because are they actually free from what they wanting freedom from absolutely yeah are they experiencing freedom in relation to this thing no no so and that's on you completely that's on them that thing out yeah yeah that's on them not the event <laughs> or exactly. the circumstance or the condition yeah so for me, the whole conversation about freedom isn't whether or not we are free or how do we create more freedoms, but it's how do we experience the freedom that exists for us? Like right now, there's not a single person, well, I'm not going to say that. The majority of people on this planet are allowed to go as far as they want to in any direction that they want to. And in fact, there are tools set up to help them and assist them to go even further than they could, like, say, a car or, say, an airplane. Now, people will get upset and say, well, I'm not really free when I fly on an airplane because I've got to do TSA and, you know, I can't bring my full tube of toothpaste and stuff. But, like, <laughs> dude, you are free to buy your own plane, get your own helicopter. <laughs> to fly without all those mechanisms and go as far as you want to, to build a friggin' space machine and take off off this planet. You're free to do any of that, whether or not you know how, whether or not you have the immediate resources to make that happen is irrelevant, but nothing is stopping you from the ability to do that. Right. And even people who, who find themselves in, let's say the most tyrannical forms of government, you know, like let's say, you know, communist China or maybe Venezuela or something like that, where you may actually find yourself in a, a totalitarian form of government where 
it seems that your what you can and can't do is is highly restricted based on the system itself. It, you really still have all those freedoms. You just you're very mindful of the consequences if you get caught, <laughs> but you still have the freedoms. Um, it was funny. There there there's a saying that uh, the only thing you have to do. The only thing, actually, it's the only things you have to do is die and pay taxes. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> nah, like I, you don't really have to pay taxes. <laughs> like, there, when there do you have be, to die? There, yeah, there may be consequences to not paying taxes, but you don't have to pay them, right? But it's- And uh, prove to me that I'm going to die, that I have to die. Well, that's definition of death. I would say if, if we if we're going to define death as like at one point your body will no longer be animated, then yes, you will die. Um, well, that's that's that's, that's based on well, because it's, well, you it's, could say it, it is presumption, but has it's died exactly. It's it's based <laughs> on evidence. It's it is right. it is uh, empirical. Everyone up until now has died, um, <laughs> so there's a really good that chance. We know about. Yeah, this, there's a really good chance that it's going to happen to you. Um, okay, I'll buy that. Okay, so yeah, I'm just going to take the scientific approach on that one. I'm not going to get too deep philosophically on on death right now. But it is there's there is always freedom, and like I said, we we spoke about Viktor Frankl and and his freedom mm -hmm. that he experienced, and and I'll say for myself, and. Uh, this was profound for me when it when when the realization hit me. Uh, I spent forty months in federal prison, and at a certain point, and I'm and I'm convinced I'm not the only one who has this experience. In fact, I'm 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 convinced it's the reason there's a a uh, institutionalized people people who just keep going back to prison. Um, but at a certain point, I experienced freedom like I've never experienced at any point in my life. In fact, I, I, I'm extre extraordinarily grateful for that experience in my life because it gave me the opportunity to, to realize the level of freedom that I can have in the world. And it's funny that it, that it happened while I was in prison. But I mean, if you really think about it, you, you're completely free of those, of of those obligations that make you feel like you're not free in the real world. You know, don't have any bills <laughs> in prison. You're not worried about where your next meal is coming from. It's guaranteed. And your place where your bed is guaranteed and clothes are guaranteed. And so it's like, it, okay, if you take all the, the survival needs, Right, and this may probably relates directly to your Maslow's pyramid as well. But if you take survival needs and you completely eliminate them, like you have absolutely no concern for them at that point. Now what? That it because so often our experience of freedom is caught up in that rat race element, which is funny because remember I told you at the beginning that liberation in the Hindu traditions, moksha was the the liberation of samsara which is the cyclical world, right? So it's, it's the rat race. <clears throat> and so being forcefully taken out of the rat race for 40 months 
gave me a whole new perspective. It allowed me yeah. to experience life from a place where I've been a, like samsara has been taken. Well, to a certain degree, you know, yes, it is very cyclical in prison. <laughs> it is definitely the same thing every day. Um, but there is still an extraordinary amount of freedom, even in this rigid structure, you know, and, and the structure becomes, it becomes no different than the rising and setting of the sun, right? It's, I mean, yes, hmm. that you could look at that. That's a cyclical part of the, of life, right? The, the sun rises and the sun sets, but it's not impeding you in any way. Right? I mean, nobody's like, oh, well, that damn, if the damn sun just stayed up or never came up, like, life would be so much better. No, it's, it's, it's a non-issue. It's like, yeah, it comes up, it goes down. And I mean, maybe in ancient times when, you know, if there wasn't a moon and there was no sun, like, you know, I could see stuff gets freaky and gets weird and gets difficult. <laughs> but in, a, in this world where we have, you know, electricity and things like that, like the sun going down doesn't affect anything. I mean, plants kind of need it, but <laughs> like, other than that, it's like, it doesn't, it, it in no way affects my rat race really. Um, and that's kind of like how the patterns, those, those, those repetitive structures in the prison, once, once the, the mental need of sustaining oneself is gone, once the, the, the fear of not sustaining oneself or not knowing or being able to provide or, or, the, or any of those things. Once all the essential needs are completely eliminated from focus, because like I said, in the real world, you're, that's a lot of times that's most people's primary focus is those survival day. elements. Yeah. yeah. So when you completely eliminate that, the, those other cyclical elements of prison are just like the sun rising and setting. It's like, okay, yeah, there's a pattern. Like I can't get out of my cell to a certain time every day. And I have to be back in at a certain time every day. And I'm only, you know, I only can only eat in between these periods in the day. And, you know, like there, all of that's laid out, but it's like I said, it's, it's not, it's not the same kind of samsara. You know what I mean? That that were that did you that feel rat race like, kind of. Did you feel like there was a level of bandwidth that was now accessible to you, having that foundational level of needs met? What do you mean by bandwidth? Exactly. Like were you freed up a little bit to work and focus on different aspects of your life? Like you told me, you read a lot of books while you were in there. Yeah, but you here's might the thing. not have been able to do that. If no, you were no. Here's the thing. Five. No, here's the thing. I actually, I did read. I read probably more in that 40 months than I have in my entire life until now. Collectively, right? But here's the thing. <laughs> I was committed because everything, because I'm a reader. I've read my entire life and I'm a learner and a lifelong learner. So I'm always learning. I'm always reading. But during that time, I committed to not reading any nonfiction. Like so nothing, no, yeah, nothing scientific, nothing philosophical, nothing, no self-help or, you know, business gurus, none of that. That was all out the door. I wasn't going to touch them. It was all fiction. And, uh, 
<laughs> and yeah, I read a lot. And, and there's a, what's interesting is I found a, a, I have a now a profound appreciation for fiction and how I've now discovered people who are conveying deep knowledge and philosophy through fictional work. And I was just like, ah, oh, man, why didn't I ever think about that? Like I've, I've avoided <laughs> fiction all these years, not realizing that that's probably the best place to convey some philosophical concepts and oh, ideas yeah. is through a fictional story. Um, because I mean, God, have you ever tried reading being in time by Heidegger? Oh my God. Like, but turn that into a book of fiction where you're just the elements of it, the concepts of it are, are within a story that, you know, has, has your, you know, archetypes and your story arcs and all these other things that it's like, it, it can keep you engaged. Whereas I feel like it's typical... got a different context to it where I don't have to even think about whether or not what this guy's saying in this book is true mm. or whether or not I should believe it. All of that weight's gone. And you're like, I can just enjoy this make-believe story and then make up what I want to when I'm finished. Yeah. Which really, if we read all like nonfiction books that way too, man, <laughs> that would be a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I de like I said, I had up until that point, not that I had never read fiction, I had, but it was like, it was a pretty low priority. Um, like I didn't, I, I, I didn't engage in reading fiction. I would occasionally come across something that was interesting and decide to read. Um, but during that whole time, it was like, I, 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 and again, I think that was, that probably contributed to that experience of freedom in that, uh, up until that point, like I, I probably, I, I really, I haven't thought about this much as this is just coming up for me right now and as a realization, but it's probably that up until that point, I would have seen it as a waste of effort and time right. to read if I wasn't gaining something from it. Like just to read for fun. Right. Yeah. Like, it, you know, I've had that same experience. Yeah. So that's probably what it was. Um, again, I haven't had a chance to really deep d dive into that deep because it's just now coming up for me. But that's that may be why I just decided, you know, the hell with uh, nonfiction. I'm I'm going fiction the whole way. I mean, I've yeah, I, I don't want to get into it, but I, I mean, I've read an enormous amount. Like I read entire works by prolific authors that I had never read before. Not one. I had never read one of their books. And read That's every awesome. book they had ever written, you know, like, so yeah, it was, I mean, <laughs> I probably read like 80 books or something like, oh, more than that. You should have probably written over a book while you were in there. I could have, but that, it would have, it would have impeded on my whole freedom thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got stuff to do now. <laughs> I got stuff to do. Yeah. It's like, uh, I had nothing to do, you know. Did so. you really have free reign of doing like whatever you wanted to do with your days or was it like college where you had to accumulate a certain amount of credits <laughs> uh well you had to avoid getting like rather than accumulating credits you had to avoid getting bad marks you know what i mean okay. um like you didn't need credits you were going to get out <laughs> like everyone is scheduled to get out at some point um <laughs> but if you get these negative marks uh, against you you won't get out as soon as you could get out Okay, so it's more, it's not so much about accumulating credits as avoiding 
negative marks. <laughs> like, like, but you didn't have to like, like a minimum participation in anything flying. that they offered there. Uh, not, not real. Uh, besides working, you had to work. You had okay. to work. But again, it was like I, well, I was fortunate because I got to the work I was doing was work I loved doing. So it wasn't even like work, you know. Mm. And the fact that I didn't need anything from the work. You know, I didn't need to pay my rent with it. I didn't need to buy food with it. I didn't need anything. So the work was just my love and appreciation for the work that I was doing. I just, I was fortunate that I got to do, uh, I got to build, I got to do metal work. I got to do fabrication and I love metal fabrication. So it's like a no brainer, like, oh, sweet. I get to do what was once a hobby. I get to do every day. Awesome. Unlimited resources. <laughs> like I got all the welders I need all like every tool I could possibly want to build shit with. I had, you know, and I had access to. So, yeah. That's I mean, awesome. and now again, I, I guarantee you not everyone had that experience because when you're forced to work and not everyone gets to work on doing something they love, most <laughs> people don't love what they're doing there. You know what I mean? Um, but I do but wonder how some many people, people go to prison and find this level of freedom that you're talking about and return to prison because they, do. they don't see the, the, the freedoms outside of prison. I'm telling you, that's what, that's my theory on institutionalization. Like dudes get out and they end up right back in like this place. Like they get out you know, in the this... free world and they're like, this place sucks. <laughs> I don't want to pay back bills. In there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm back. You know, um, like, it I kind of makes the, me think about, uh, you know, like, there's a lot of arguments about how many people return back to prison and how bad that number is. And it reminds me of the same conversation around homelessness. Because I wonder how many people that are in prison actually want to be there and prefer being there. Mm -hmm. And I, I would almost like say it's, it might even be similar to the amount of people that are homeless and choose to be, to be homeless. Yeah. Like there I, was I, one guy that my, my stepdad was like, Hey man, uh, I'm not going to be at the apartment for a while. Here's a key. You can go stay there as long as you want. And the guy went there showered. What's that? I, I was calling my son. <laughs> I was like, the guy literally went there for one night and took a shower and then packed up his stuff and left. And the guy, my, my stepdad came back after like, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks or something like that to find like 40 other people living in his apartment <laughs> and not his buddy. And he's like, what the hell, man? He's like, you think I wouldn't, you think I would be homeless if I didn't want to be? He's like, I don't like having the responsibility of a house or payments or bills or like all the stuff it takes to fill a house to make it comfortable. And there's like, it blew my mind in college because I was like, you mean not all homeless people like don't want to be homeless. There are some people that choose to live and camp a minimalist lifestyle and it blew my mind. And now I'm like, the prison system's the same way. <laughs> there are some people that are there that don't want to be there, but there are also people that are there that want to be there. It's Absolutely. it changes the entire my entire worldview on the prison system. Yeah, and I actually experienced that firsthand with homeless people as well. Uh, me and a group of three friends, or four of us, we went into like near the garment district downtown LA. And uh, 
at this time, this was back in 2002, 2003, sometime around there. And at first we were going to do like, oh, let's go feed the homeless kind of thing. And we decided, well, first, let's go have conversations with the homeless. Like, let's connect with these people. You know what I mean? Like, because uh, like when we really sat down and thought about it, we're like, well, what's really valuable? Like, like, you know, they, they, they eat, they get food, you know, and okay, what's one more meal? Not that we were going to not feed them, but we were, we were looking for a deeper kind of experience. Um, right. This was an exercise in, in a deeper kind of experience around the homeless situation. And so we decided we separated, like, so we each went our separate ways and our goal was to connect, to, to truly connect with, like have deep conversations with as many homeless people as we could within, I think we gave ourselves like a three or four hour time limit and then we we're going to all meet up again and, uh, and then talk about our experiences and stuff like that. So, so I go and the funny thing is like, I figured, okay, you know, four hours, whatever it was, um, dude, I'm going to. I'm going to talk to like 20, right? I talked to two. <laughs> and the one, the one, it would have probably only been one, but the first guy I talked to, he was, just, he was busy. He was on, he was like, I, like, I got to get, you know, I got to go get my hustle on. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's good talking to you. for work. Basically. <laughs> yeah. He's like, look, I got to go hit this corner. Um, got to get into my game, you know, so. I'll talk to you later, but he was really nice. Like, you know, didn't blow me off or anything, but he was, you know, he, again, it was clear. He was like, he had, I didn't really get to have a deep conversation with him because I only got to talk to him for maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, but what I did get in that 20, 30 minutes of conversation with him was that like, yeah, he had family and yeah, they had homes and things like that. Um, drugs was an issue for him. And but it, I didn't sense, and it never came up in the conversation, there was no resentment for his family, you know, or friends or anything else. He was just like, yeah, like this is it. Like, this is, this is what I got, and I'm cool with this, is kind of what I got from him. The next guy I talked to, dude, we talked the rest of the time. It was like two and a half, three hours or something. I talked to this guy. <laughs> and... uh and what was interesting, because he was, you know, my family, my dad's family is from New Orleans. And he was from New Orleans. And so that was like our first point of connection was like, you know, the, the Creole Cajun traditions that I was familiar enough with that I could have a conversation with him on. But then again, as the conversation went on, and he, I don't, drugs may have been an issue with him, but he was not under the influence of any drugs at the time, at least not to the point of, uh, of it being noticeable. You know what I mean? Like he could carry on a conversation. Um, he didn't have like he any phys- or anything. Yeah, no. And he didn't have any physical tics that would like indicate that he was, you know, jonesing for something or in need of something or anything else. Um, but I mean, literally we just, it was just like two dudes sitting on this, uh, like a concrete, it's kind of like a set of stairs, like a low set of stairs that had no railing or anything on it. Like we were just kind of sitting on that. Okay, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what officially what a stoop is, but we were, we sat there and we talked and what, what became clear to me was that it, 
it was a choice for him, definitely. That he had no desire for life to be any different. He had no desire to be in a house. He had no real desire to be, you know, to have, because he, again, he had a, he had family and things like that that he did not see. Like these aren't, and I, and I imagine that's probably common for a homeless person. You don't necessarily see or interact with family or friends. Like, yeah, you see and interact with people, mostly other homeless people, but there sense within him a, a need or a desire for uh, any human connection beyond that, beyond what he was experiencing on the streets. Right. Um, he actually, like, the funny thing is, he actually seemed more secure and less in need of approval than most regular people I knew. You know what I mean? Like he was, he was good. You know what I mean? He was like, he was just like a more emotionally mature. Yeah, exactly. He was just in a good place. Like, uh, like the, the, I would say that the, the stereotypes of what we get for homeless people of, and I'm not saying that these don't exist, but yet that, you know, it's a majority of, you know, drug users and mentally ill and things like that. Dude, he was neither that I could detect. Like, like I said, he may have been a drug user, but he didn't. He he wasn't drinking at the time. He didn't have drugs at the time. He didn't seem affected by drugs at the time, and he he definitely didn't have any mental illness that I could detect. You know, like he was like we had a conversation, a real conversation, and so it's it it definitely changed my worldview around mm-hmm. homelessness as well. In that it it, it is it, and 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 what's funny is when we all came back together, me and my three friends, that was the experience we all had. Like nobody came across, (laughs) yeah, nobody came across and was like, yeah, I got, you know, bad luck, blah, blah. Nobody was blaming anyone for anything. And everyone was pretty much in a place of choice of where they were. Now it may be the area of Los Angeles we were in. These these may be, you know, uh, seasoned homeless people, you know, because I know that there are, well, there, that's a thing, you know, people who've been homeless for a long time. Um, like people who lost their homes recently because of, you know, the market and end up in tents on, you know, under bridges, they're not seasoned homeless people. You know what I mean? So they don't necessarily have the same approach. Yeah. They're new to the game and they're definitely not in a place of like, Oh yeah, this is cool. (laughs) But (laughs) these guys were, you know, these guys were seasoned homeless people and they were, they were for, for the most part, the ones that we could have conversations because some of my buddies did run into some of the same situations where it's like, you couldn't have a conversation because the person was, you know, blasted out of their mind or, you know, not coherent or, or we, I didn't come across any, but my buddies, a couple of them did come across people who were clearly mentally ill. Like they, like they shouldn't definitely shouldn't be on the streets. Like describing the way these people were and how they were experiencing the world around them. Like they should be somewhere where they could be taken care of. Um, and yeah, so that there's, there is definitely that. And there, when we did have that experience, but I just happen to have the experience that I had. The funny thing is, is those people probably are more taken care of in with the people on the streets than they are or were with their family like say um like there's been all of these like social experiments and stuff like that but um i have like i don't remember when but like being a musician touring musician 
I've spent my fair share of nights outside of a club at two in the morning waiting for everybody to finish up and get paid. And there'll be a guy walks by. And there's one, one dude specifically I remember, um, like we played two nights in a row, I think, in, in Denver at one point. And this dude walked up, I forget his name, but he was the guy that always walked around with the guitar on his back. <laughs> and like every day you'd see him, he'd be like one string less. So he had six strings <laughs> and he had five strings and four strings. And um, he just came up and he was like, hey, man, what's up? You got any change for me? I'll play a song or something. And he just like ended up chatting with him. I'm like, what happened to like the 20 bucks that I saw you collect in 30 seconds that I saw you out here last night? And he's like, Oh man, I you know I bought food for all my buddies. I went back and we all ate a bunch of pizza. And we had a couple of beers and out of money again. So I'm just out here doing it again. And I was like, "You spent all the money that you got on you and your friends." So yeah, it's like there's a group of us over here that just all hang out. And it's like they're like my family. Like I feel as though the homeless community is more of a community. In I mean, this isn't this is a broad generalization <laughs> <laughs> but i have seen immense connection and community relationships in inside homeless communities as well and it's not like there's just lone zombies that are sick and drugged up wandering the streets <laughs> everybody wants to like right. kick out of their neighborhoods these are like people that are compassionate and, and amazing individuals that are on the street too and the thing that that full circles this for me is that a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have found a level of freedom that works mm -hmm. for them in choosing homelessness. Yeah. 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 I, I, I get it. I get it. I definitely get it now. Like it, it, it rings true and it, and, and I, and I can relate there. There, I can see, how there would be an experience of freedom around that. Um, so looking, and again, steering this back to why I, why I brought this part into the conversation was that often we look outside of ourselves as, the, as what causes us to experience freedom or not. Um, and like and and from my experience, that's not necessarily like now somebody may be sitting there and go, "Well, you know, you're in prison. You weren't free." And again, I would say, "Well, what's your definition?" Because it's I I absolutely felt a freedom that I've never experienced before, and you may not know what freedom is <laughs> uh, and, what, and what it feels like to truly be free, especially if you're caught up in, you know, gaining approval, being accepted, being right, looking good. Like if, if you're caught up in all that, you're not experiencing freedom at any level. You could you're, be. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. I That's, think you could choose to create an experience of freedom in that, but whether no, or it's, not you're it, really yeah, free, I, yeah, or whether no, or not I'm, that's a constant experience. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fall under my definition of freedom. I think realistically, people can create the experience of freedom regardless of what the circumstances and conditions are. No, they may, and they can going no, over the Buddhist. Here, here, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rebut you and say they can create the illusion of freedom. 
Like, let's take the wealthiest people on the planet, right? Because oftentimes that's what people see as the source of freedom is money, right? If I had all the money in the world, I'd be free because I could go anywhere and I could do anything. These people typically, I can't even paint broad strokes with with the wealthy, the elite, but I'm I'm going to generalize. I'm going to say typically... The wealthiest people on the planet are some of the most depressed, most anxious, right? Because they are caught up in the need to be right, the need to look good, the need for approval from others, okay? They still are caught up in that game. And all the money in the world can't buy you out of that game. And if you're caught up in that game, there's no freedom because you're still you're not, you're suffering, but not from a place of choice. Like I said, you could, if, when you get the, how the, the process of, of transcending suffering, then you can be in a place of choosing how and when you experience suffering, right? They're not there. And all the money in the world can't buy their way to that place. All the money in the world ain't going to buy you nirvana. <laughs> ain't going to buy you Satori. Ain't going to buy you Samadhi, right? It, it, it just doesn't happen like that. And, and typically what you find is people who accumulate vast fortunes actually get more caught up in that shit. They get more caught up in their ego. They get more, you know, it actually becomes worse. How often have you heard somebody say, more money, more problems, right? There's a freaking song with that title, right? So, <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, so it's clear that like people who've been on both sides, like, he, like even Joe Rogan say, shit just got crazy when I had a lot of money, you know? Like it, like it becomes more, m- more of a burden. Having it, if most people would say that having an extraordinary amount of money becomes a much bigger burden. And I can relate because when I was in prison, I didn't have any money. <laughs> I experienced freedom, right? So, so I get it. I get, I, I can see 24 cents a day. No, I, Hey man, I got up to the highest pay scale. I was making at one point I was making uh, like 75 cents a day or a dollar. I might've got up to a dollar a day. Yeah. A day, a dollar a day. That's the highest. Pay you something. That's the <laughs> highest end of the pay scale. The lowest end was. Oh no no no! I'm sorry. That's not per day. That's per hour. That's the highest end of the pay okay. scale per hour. Okay, so uh, seventy. It was either seventy five. I was gonna say like a bag of nuts is like a week's no, worth of work. No, no, no. That's that's <laughs> not right. But here's the thing: most people are at the lowest end of the pay scale, which was thirteen cents an hour. 13 cents an hour. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine working for 13 cents an hour. A hundred years ago, maybe. I don't know, man. Yeah, when when you could actually go to the movies for 13 cents. (laughs) I remember filling up my tank for a nickel. (laughs) I like those days. I, yeah, I see what I, you mean, though, about more money, more problems. Yeah. Um, because really, it's not like money is not going to buy freedom. No. There are certain things you could experience freedom from, but really the being free, there's a whole lot more responsibility that comes with 
higher levels of income. Mm-hmm. And like, like you were talking about. But there's still the option and the ability to experience freedom with or without money. With Absolutely. or without any yeah. other circumstances. Yeah. Uh, so it's and not that's to the say. point I like to, yeah, to really drive in here for everybody. Yeah, and it's not to say that because you have a lot of money, you won't experience freedom. No, absolutely. You could, you, regardless of the money, <laughs> if you've got all of it or none of it, you can experience freedom. And because the money is not, it's not a factor. It's really, exactly. it's, it's, I mean, I guess for one, it'd have to be on your access to technology that can alleviate in, or, or elevate you to a state of uh, a, a state of consciousness where you experience freedom. So that's, I guess that's one thing um, that would technology? help. It's that, what you, did you hear what I said by technology? Did you hear what came after technology, Jinji? <laughs> yes, I did hear that. Okay. Okay. Cause I wasn't talking about computers and iPads. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But yes, uh, that, that would definitely be, had I not, let's say, if you didn't have some kind of spiritual tradition, you know, because that's often where people will find this, this pathway to freedom is in some philosophy, some spiritual tradition. That's where you're, that's the technology I'm talking about. You know, um, without that, it, it could be difficult because then you're left to your own devices. You know, what, what capacity do you have to think in a way that first to realize that, that, that you do have that power, you know, with in your experience to transform it. Um, and then Everybody always has that power. Right. But, but it's like, okay. Part of it is having an awareness that you have that power. Right? Like that does <laughs> you know, that, that may just occur to you one day. Um, or it may not. <laughs> and I'd say that's probably a pretty significant uh, part of this is whether or not you've ever been exposed to something that yeah. could be a pathway to freedom. And there are many pathways to freedom. I feel like I said, I focused on what I focused on today because I feel like it's just such a simple one. It's so easy. Um, because in, and really, you don't even need the whole list. You don't need no. all four. You don't even need all no. eight in that in number three. We talked about you could really get away with one or two or even three of them. Yeah. And be incredibly successful in experiencing freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, like I know people that have made up their own processes to be like, mm-hmm. uh, no, I don't care about any of that. This is what works for me. Well, dude, look at every, this is, this is funny. Look at every profound self-help book out there, right? Whether it's your, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success or your, uh, what does Don Miguel Ruiz call his? The Four Agreements, whatever, right? It's, the, the Seven Steps to Wokeness. Whatever, right? There's <laughs> and the, the 11 principles of this and the 12 steps of that. And the, yeah. <laughs> it's all the same shit. You know what I mean? Like in reality, it's and like, I mean, sometimes it's exactly the same shit. Just like, Dude giving Verbatim different moment. words. Yeah. It's like, well, we'll change, change the vernacular, around. <laughs> change the, 
the 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 syntax a little bit and you know the vocabulary tweaked here and there and then it's it's like it's something new something different but it's like it's the same stuff and it and yeah. and there's a reason why it's why it occurs to people to be so profound wow why it occurs to people to be so profound is that it's it 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 does have that spark of something else that truth that that yeah. kind of supersedes and 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 has made its way into all traditions, right? Um, like, like I said, I underlying body of information or yeah. um, of knowledge that has somehow been interpreted in different ways throughout yeah. time, and that's yeah. something that we've talked about in the past. I'd really love to find like what those original teachings say. I like getting to the common fucking ginger. You always, th you always, you always think there's a thing that the start, the point, the focus, the concentration. I don't know about that. Yeah, dude, it, there is no, you, you want you, the original that what you're, what you're stuck in is linear. Like you're assuming <laughs> that it's linear, that it all came from a point. What okay. if it's not, Gingy? What if, what if reality, what if the universe isn't linear, Gingy? What if it's cyclical? What if there is no beginning and end? What if it's something that's always been present? That's fine, too. Okay. In fact, that's the way that I lean. <laughs> I However, know. we're talking about all these different things communicating the same message, and I'm like, I'd like to get in there and find all the commonalities. But but if you if you think about it, it even actually makes more sense that this is something that that is beyond a, a linear progression. It is something that is part of the nature of reality and why it has appeared yeah. in everything, as opposed to like, oh well, it was those guys back there. They're the ones who figured it out, and we've all inherited it from them. There are cultures on this planet who have never had connections to each other up until the present last couple centuries. And yet the concepts, the principles, the traditions, especially these most profound and profound ones were already there. And there was no connection ever in the past or anything else. And the, the presumption and assumption is that it must have come from some people or some writing or some doctrine or some teaching but what if it is underlying reality? These are principles by which reality unfolds, and then we just kind of tap into them as opposed to pass them along and trade them off and inherit them from other cultures or traditions or anything else. To me, it almost makes more sense because then you yeah, can't, that, because then it can occur all over the planet without necessarily all these different people on the planet ever having a connection to it. Now, realistically, <clears throat> all of this stuff exists in the psyche or the consciousness of the race, what some people will call collective consciousness. Right. And that's I'm less it, interested in where it came from or who invented it or its origin. And I'm more interested in, in seeing all the commonalities seeing all the same things that's, that people have pulled out. That's, I, I, that's cool to me. That's actually what led me down my path of, of learning, literally researching, learning every religion, 
every philosophy, anything and everything I can get my hands on because it was that finding a common thread that I'm like, yeah. whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> because at first, because I started when I was pretty young and I was like, I had a, a spiritual need within me. So my first, you know, being of Western culture, raised through by Western culture, my belief was that there must be a right religion, right? And I was clear <laughs> that it wasn't mine at the time, which was Catholicism. So I'm like, okay, well, that one ain't right. Whatever, that, that can't be the one. So I went searching, you know, and I, and I, and I, and in researching every, with an open mind, because I was, I was literally, I was in a place of like, well, I know that one ain't right, but one of them might be, you know? And so I just started just absorbing every religion and philosophy I could. And then just finding that like, wow, there is a lot more here that's the same than that's different. And when you get, and when you look at the stuff that is different, it's the stuff that's non-consequential. It's like, it's meaningless really as a, as a spiritual tradition and the, and the true principles of these doctrines, like you get rid of the dogmatic stuff and it's like, okay, these are pretty much all the same. <laughs> you know, like, like, like if you, like in the Hindu system, there is reincarnation, right? And in modern Christianity, that's not a thing, right? There's, it's uh, life and then eternal damnation or eternal heaven, right? So that's, but I'm saying you, those are dogmatic, because in this life, it is immaterial and irrelevant if either of those is right. Right? Like, if yeah. the principles to live your life by are the same, then, well, then I could just be Hindu. And if it is eternal <laughs> damnation, well, then I'm going to heaven because I live my life by these principles. Now, I know a lot of Christians don't buy that because they're like, no, 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 you must acknowledge Jesus Christ is the one and only. Which is funny because uh, Hindus, by their nature and by the nature of their religion and their culture, like you, you know, their their worldview of the the Brahman being manifest in all, in the the Atman, the individualization of the Brahman, which is the, the of what we would call God, right? And the Atman being like that individual s piece of God. So in their culture, like to say your God is to is like a no duh kind of like thing. So when the Christian missionaries went into India, they were surprised at how accepting of Christianity they were. Like, oh yeah, yeah, he was <laughs> he's God, cool, yeah, right on, yeah, we believe it, you know, because <laughs> they're like, yeah, we got we got this elephant headed one over here rides around on a mouse. We got this one over here with ten arms. Yeah, we got all they're all you know sons of God and and the one God and blah blah blah. And what they didn't run into any problems until they're like, no, 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 this is the only one. All yours are wrong. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like he's the only one. We're all one. Like you know, their the worldview was like like it's the, literally a hundred to one, and you yeah. guys want us to pick your side. Yeah, and but and it, all of a sudden, what it didn't make sense because their worldview was the Brahman manifests in every individual. So every individual is God, you know, playing that he's not, and these people who show up as like avatars and like. uh demigods or semi or heroes or whatever within within the the historical context of our of our societies and our in our in our religious stories and things 
they were the they were the ones who just kind of excelled. You know, they showed up with with the as the manifestation of the of the word of God, of the power of God, you know, and all that. So yeah, they were clear like not everyone shows up like Shiva, but Shiva's no better than I. You know, like yeah. we were both the uh, the Atman, we're both not a of the Brahman. Yeah, it's just like he just he you know, he came here to do his thing. I'm here doing my thing. You know, there, there's not a right or wrong to who's here doing their thing. And so when you come to me with this, oh, there's this new character. His name is Jesus. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, add him to the, add him to the stack. You know, put his little statue up there <laughs> next to the other ones. And they're like, no, 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 no. He's the only one. And that they're like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, no, he's not. <laughs> you guys don't get it. You know, so there was that was where the conflict came in. They had no problem accepting Jesus, accepting Christianity. They had no problem until the Christians wanted to turn around and go, no, 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 you have to stop believing in all the other things you believe and and acknowledge that none of those things were God. You know, and they're like, that doesn't make sense to a Hindu. Like, uh, because again, their worldview, what they came out of is that like the Brahman is the ultimate and manifests in everything. So yeah, of course he's Jesus. And of course he's Shiva, but of course he's me too, you know? Um, so it did, it just didn't jive with a, a, a long seated worldview. Like we're, in reality that the Hindu culture, because it's more than a religion, it's, it's a culture, it's, it's a language, it's all that. It, it's probably one of the longest standing traditions and cultures on the planet. Like the oldest texts on the planet come out of their culture. You know, um, and, and that's an interesting conversation for another time. If you look at the nature of those texts and what they're talking about, these 10,000 year old books, but, um, it, they, when like our narrative of history does not fit with their idea of their own history. Like they look at it as like, nah, this has been going on for tens of thousands of years. Like that's how they look at their own past, you know, like, oh yeah, there was, you know, this city over here that's, you know, now underwater, whatever. Yeah. That was, you know, tens of thousands of years. We're like, no, no, no. There were only cavemen <laughs> tens of thousands of years ago. Like, uh, <laughs> nah, we had cities. You guys may have been cavemen. We had cities, you know. Um, you guys were in the caves. That's yeah. Fine. You guys, you guys might've been in caves. That's cool. Like we're not going to judge, but we had a city and it was a big city, you know. Awesome. So I know we didn't get a chance. Yeah, we're going to have to leave that for another time, which is actually probably good uh, because it doesn't exactly fit with this, but I did want to touch on responsibility, but I feel like in the way, in the direction that we took this yeah. conversation on freedom, that it's better left for another conversation because it would fit well, more with I the I feel like it's actually interwoven in to everything that we addressed. And I feel it's a big takeaway from this entire conversation. Is yes, it is. Freedom is not given. Freedom is generated. Yeah. Generated. Yeah. Freedom is generated and experienced by the individual. And right. even in Nirvana, enlightenment, all of that stuff, they're still going through the day to day, doing the same things with a different experience. Even in right. healing a old trauma or whatever that's happened, there's just a shift of your relationship with that thing, that event, right. person, that whatever. So the shift is internal and the experience is generated within. 
that to me is like fundamentally what we've talked about this entire call. Well, majority of the call. <laughs> right. The whole experience of freedom lies there. So if not responsibility, then I don't I don't really know where freedom would come from. Right. Now yeah. liberty, that would be different. Like somebody else can give me liberty. Like move the fence. Now I can walk further. Thank you. <laughs> right. That's different. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because it is, it's different based on the distinction, the definition that you're giving liberty, but it is in some traditions and cultures, that's the, that's how it's translated into English is a a liberation, which I actually, that's something I I wanted to bring up with you. I I would say, I would make the similar distinction to the way you distinguish it as liberty is something that is outside of um, but that's not how they really, that's not how they mean it, even though it's translated that way. Again, right. there's, there's a lot of that's poor how it's translation. Used more than anything else. Yeah. And there's a lot of poor translation of, of, especially of Sanskrit into English, in my opinion, of course, let I'm me, an uh, expert. But. Let me read this to you because after I had given that distinction, the difference between uh, liberty and freedom, I was reading the, the middle way. It says the middle way or middle path is the term that uh, Guatama Buddha used to describe the character of the noble eightfold path he discovered that leads to liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, it's using that word. And, and again, that's coming from moksha, which is the Hindu. You got to remember, Buddhism really came out of Hinduism. Um, I mean, Bo- Buddha, Gautama, would have been a of the Hindu people, of the Hindu traditions, of the Hindu culture. In fact, he was a Hindu aesthetic. Um, so it's, they are heavily entwined. And, and, and again, I, I would translate it differently because of my personal definite, how I personally define that word of liberty and liberation. Um, and the contemporary use of the language. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, that's why a lot of times when I when I speak in on e- many Eastern philosophies, I'll even use Chinese words because I like to go back to where the word originated. Um, like even like when we have conversations about Zen and taking Zen from the Japanese back to the Chinese of Chan and taking that back to the Sanskrit of Jarna and then like really then trying to work it from there as opposed to just <clears throat> this word because i don't know who came up with it (laughs) like at what point who decided this was the word for that word um but i don't think that they've always done such a great job you know what i mean i feel like uh sometimes their their efforts have been half-assed at best (laughs) so i don't (laughs) completely agree and the only reason i can even speak intelligently on something like translation because I'm no linguistic expert or anything, but I look at it as a, from a context. Like if you look at the context of the eightfold noble path and, and the fourfold noble truth and, <clears throat> and even like the root words, you know, and what, like all the, all the ways we could translate those words, like, when you put a context with it, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, I get it. Yes, that word could be right. But in this context, it, it, it seems more appropriate to translate it as this. We, it's, it's, 
it's funny because it's actually difficult for us to conceive there not being word for word translations from every language to every language, you know, and it's just, yeah. it's just not the case. It's always contextual. Like to, to translate something verbatim is often a horrible, a horrible mutilization. Mutilization is the word mutil mutality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a horrible mut mutilization Mut of the mutilation. word. Mutilation. There it is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a horrible or grotesque mutilation of the phrase because it is void of the context. Like, I mean, even from languages that are closely related, like Latin-based languages to English, like we have a lot of Latin-based uh, words in the English language. And so it's not much of a leap to translate into a Latin-based language, like let's say Spanish. But if you do a verbatim, word-for-word -word translation of an English phrase into a Spanish, it seldom holds the same meaning. In it fact, doesn't work. yeah, and in fact, a lot of times can completely distort the meaning. So that's that's why I think it's a and good it idea. And it shows like the the mindset of the people that use the language and the people that mm -hmm. created the language. Where right. like, even though in Spanish you could say like, "Qué es tu nombre?" Like, what mm -hmm. is your number? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> so it's what it is. It's what is your number? But that's not what they say. That's not what they use, because no. the people will say like "como te amo," and that's like "how are you called?" Called verbatim. But you wouldn't right. hear somebody in English be like, "Hey, man, how are you called?" It doesn't happen. Uh, <laughs> softly, loudly, but it's. So it just shows like the approach to the language too, which I. Yeah, no, it's and 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 that's why I feel like, especially when you're talking about a philosophy that was born in another tradition, in another language, that it's important to like really get at the root of the language and really kind of work it up from there as well. Um, so I do, I try to do that as much as I can. Oftentimes, I'll, I definitely don't have the exposure to like say Hebrew, uh, Hebrew, yes, Hebrew, as I do to, you know, Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, um, and even Chinese. I have more, a more, I've, I've delved deeper into those languages, <clears throat> whereas there's definitely some of the uh, Hebrew writings and traditions that I, I feel like I could definitely gain by doing some research in the language. It just hasn't become part of my repertoire as of yet i haven't delved into it but i know if i ever were to dive deep into some western traditions that i i feel that having a firm grasp on on hebrew would be hugely beneficial because i've seen i've seen you know just in the small parts i have seen when i have seen people say well this is how you you know these are the possible translations of these words from this text and how it appears over in this text. Wow. Uh, <laughs> like, I feel like a lot was lost there. You know? <laughs> like, wait a minute. You took 15 different words from this text and translated them as the same word over here. Like, uh, I feel like you could have created some nuance or some subtle changes there, you know, to... yeah, but there's even like translations of translations. Yeah. Like they'll oh, translate yeah. into English 
but then 500 years will go by and they'll be like, well, we don't really use those words the way that we used to. So we're going to translate that English text into this new contemporary version of English text. Mm -hmm. And that could be even further from the original interpretation. And then consider that that's happening in every language. That's right. Like it was right. funny when right. I, when I was a kid, there's this place, like it's a pretty big office complex kind of thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a facility, right? And it's like the sign. And this is right on beach Boulevard in Huntington beach, right? Like a major street, like a pretty big facility. It's all Bible translators. I'm like, what? You know, and this is, you know, this is in the eighties. I'm like, I want that job. I'm like, wait a minute you guys ain't done doing that? Like, hasn't that already been done? Like, how are you still translating the Bible? You know, I'm like, like I'm I, I, like, I, I, it was this head scratcher. Like, wow. Like, like, I mean, I, I realize there's a lot of languages and stuff in the world. And, but I'm like, did, we've did had this book. That, uh, you ever watch that movie, the man from earth and from earth and from earth. Dude, it's, it's like, like a, it's like a B movie. movie. Right. And he's like 10,000 yeah, year old dude. Yes. I have yeah. seen it. <laughs> I'm like, I could just see the biblical translations getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Just like how that guy was like, oh, I could tell you uh, the entire Bible in 10 words. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's the, the ultimate translation yeah. <laughs> for him anyway. Right. There's, a lot, but... there's a lot lost in the <clears throat> translation. Right. But I guess what, like, what, what I realized as I got older was that, like, actually, that is something that would, that would be going on indefinitely, you know, is the translation of the Bible. Because it, there is the nuances in language are constantly changing in every language. Yeah. And I'm sure they've put that book out in every language, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, I, 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 I'd be, I'd be amazed if it wasn't in at least in at least 80 languages. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more, but I, I would be surprised I if it was less. I would be surprised if it wasn't. I feel right. like they have put that language into, sorry, that the Bible into just about every Right. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that there are some languages that still Christianity has not reached the culture to the cultures right. that speak those languages. Right. But like anyway. <laughs> I know for instance you can go to like Zambia and they speak 40 different languages inside that inside that country. Right. And there's a huge Christian presence there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I wonder if they took this book and put it into all 40 of the languages. Or because or they, did they just get common language or, did, or did they just get lazy, <laughs> put it into one of them, and then like start doing what they did, what the Spanish did, like in the Americas, and they're just forcing everyone to <laughs> adopt that language. You know, <laughs> yeah, actually, they speak I mean, forty it, languages, but one of them's English, and that's the one that they use between tribes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. English very uh, English. Okay. Thinking about that, I was like, "Well, shit." Okay. All right, I feel like I feel like we've we beat this one dead. We nailed oh. it, man. Nice. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Gingy, for a very uh, stimulating conversation. I look forward to our next one, and uh, thank everybody thank for joining us. And 
talk to you very soon. Yeah. Phenomenafa. Phenomenosophy. Episode five. Phenomenama. Path of freedom. Path to freedom. Bye, y'all. Freedom. That's a buckle five.